Before the episode starts, just a quick heads up. I feel like we've done more content warnings in the last several episodes than we ever had previously, but this is more about the state of the country and less about the movie itself. In this episode, which we recorded weeks back at this point, we briefly discuss mass shootings. Obviously, in the wake of the recent tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, we don't want anyone to get unexpectedly smacked in the face with that topic when it finds its way into our discussion, so consider this your heads up. If any of the recent events in Portland, Sacramento, New York, Columbia, Pittsburgh, Buffalo, Orange County, or Uvalde have put you in an angry, frustrated, hopeless place, Turn those negative feelings into action and donate to one of the many unfortunately necessary GoFundMe-type benefits to support the families of these victims. Let your state and federal Congress people know how you feel, and most importantly, inform yourself on the issues, candidates, and vote. Again, sorry to start the episode off this way, but we feel it's important to acknowledge the recent events instead of just gushing about a classic movie and ignoring reality. We love you all. Be kind to each other. begin i was just reminiscing aaron do you remember that one time when we were a podcast with no listeners before we became a podcast with maybe a couple listeners maybe dozens of listeners i mean sure yeah we were out here and it was right over yonder you showed me a movie called the texas chainsaw massacre yeah and you jumped out at me from behind that tree podcast daddy got all excited and shook his fist at you and said boy you'll be damned to hell you remember that aaron (laughs) right over there sure yeah Boy, I've always been really scared here. Sounds good. (laughs) I'm scared too. (laughs) Johnny! (laughs) Oh my god. Welcome everybody to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Aaron, and my cowardly co-host, Derek, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. Guess what? Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. It's Dead Boy Summer, y'all. Dead Boy Summer. So yeah, we're going to kick off a summer series, and we are going to be discussing the original three Romero zombie movies, which is something we have been wanting to do for a long time. With some other uh, zombie flicks, too, as surprises. Yes. So we are going to be covering each of the three original trilogies. So we are covering Night this month, we are going to be doing Dawn next month, and then we are going to be doing Day in August, and the second episode each month is going to be a surprise that pairs with that movie. 
It's going to be a fun summer. We're going to get all zombied up. Dead boy summer. Woo! First time doing something like this. We're going to kick it off with the original Night of the Living Dead, one of the most important horror movies in the entire canon, something that redefined the entire horror subgenre, the entire zombie subgenre, and is a very important movie in the scope of American independent cinema. And what better guest to have on to discuss this my good friend, Kelly Sherman. What's up, Kelly? Hey, y'all. Thank you for having me again, and I'm, I'm excited to be here. And this is a good follow-up, too, because the last episode you're on was Get Out. You know, go back and listen to that if you haven't. But uh, on Get Out, you had mentioned this movie. You had mentioned it's actually the main character in this movie. And you were saying that I think this movie is among your favorites, if not arguably your, your favorite horror movie of all time, and that you really wanted to come on to discuss this. So this is kind of like perfect timing. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think the quickest way to tell the story of like why I have such a, a love for Night of the Living Dead, Romero's original. So Fright Night is definitely like my favorite horror film of all time. Fright Night will yep. always always be at the top for me. Yeah, but right. I got to be like very specific when I say this. It's like the first film that I have a memory at a young age of, you know, my biological father who wasn't really in my life much, literally sitting my ass down, putting on some black and white movie and then like leaving me by myself. No matter how <laughs> shitty that sounds, you know, I think I've turned into a, a a pretty cool young dude but like I'll never forget being in this duplex of a house in in Detroit Michigan and not having much but you know what we did have a lot of it had to do with like movies and television my dad was my biological father was a big big movie buff when I tell y'all this dude had a computer that I remember his VHS tapes they were literally in some kind of numerical order and they were all like logged in the computer if any of my my siblings are listening which they will you know, in the next couple of weeks. But like, I remember George would have this computer and like, if we were looking for a movie and now I'm fast forwarding a little bit, you know, for when he was still around. But for me, it was always horror films. Like, yo, let me watch The Fly, you know, not knowing that it was one of David Cronenberg's masterpieces, but like, let me watch The Fly or trying to think some of the other movies that I loved. I don't know if y'all remember Lord of Illusions. Clyde Barker's yeah. Lord of the Illusions. That's one I've been wanting to do on the show for a while. Okay. I just love the lore of this crazy cult and this different world. You know, like I link it to, to Hellraiser and there's probably like a lot of links because it's all Clyde Barker, but I just love that type of world and those were the type of things that I was drawn to. But I remember being super young and this was the first memory that I have of, I don't know what this is on the screen, but I fucking love it. You know? Yeah. yeah. I had that experience with Jaws. And for yeah. all intents and purposes, I shouldn't. This dude is is putting on some movie for a five-year-old six-year-old and it's fucking people eating other people you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. so but yeah, yeah that's why night of living dead you know other than of course always following romero's work even the shit that most people don't associate him with that y'all know he did but like the first creep show i fucking love the first creep love show. creep show man the one that really blew me away that i had not seen until just a few years ago is fucking martin i am so hype for that second site <laughs> release to finally come out because yeah. that is going to be like a day one instant pre-order i mean i did the same thing with dawn as soon as they announced that set i had fucking smashed that button and pre-ordered a copy immediately yeah. and waited damn near a year for it to get to me but it was such an amazing restoration and they're doing the same thing with martin that movie is amazing as soon as that set is in my hands available i'm gonna force derek to do that on the show like that's gonna be an episode (laughs) we're gonna do as soon as it's available i'm okay with that that movie is 
fucking stellar. Two things. You you mentioned Friday Night being your favorite horror movie, and listeners go back, because Kelly, that I think that was your first appearance on our podcast. I think actually. so, yeah. It was Friday Night, the original one. And then, weird synchronicity, you bringing up the flying Cronenberg, I am wearing my scanner shirt right now. I see it. I saw it, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. While we record, peek behind the curtain. Super random. Y'all know I can go on tangents all day, but um, did y'all see his new thing with Vigo? I forget what it's called. Something about bodies. Crimes of the Future. I cannot fucking wait. Oh, I cannot yep. wait for that. that. So hype. That's like first week of June, right? Yes. It's premiering at Con, and then I think it's supposed to go wide sometime next month. Can't wait. Can't wait. Yeah. yeah. I love the idea behind it, and I do get a little bit of Videodrome vibes. Oh, yeah. Oh, Videodrome yeah. is yeah. like my yeah. favorite of the Cronenberg movies I've seen so far. Yeah, it's going to be like a feature version of one of his short films that he put out at the very beginning of his career. So I'm very oh, curious nice. to see yeah. how this kind of evolves that theme. And he's already announced another movie in the works after that. Yep. And it's another horror movie, too. Awesome. So it's awesome. Awesome that this late in his career, he's putting out fresh stuff. You know, David Lynch and John Carpenter. I I wish you guys would take some notes here. Yeah, Yeah, that'd be great for them to jump back in. Well, uh, before we get started talking about the movie, of course, as always, we're going to go through a couple of recommendations for any horror content that we have consumed recently, uh, whether that's other movies, TV shows, books, comics, music, etc. So, Kelly, you being the guest, uh, I know there's one thing that you and I both want to talk about, but uh, is there anything else horror-wise that you have gotten into lately? So I've got two quick things, and I'll say one is, uh, and it's it's kind of close to me, so that's what makes it kind of exciting, but it, it went on all streaming platforms, so Voodoo, iTunes, etc. But a good friend of mine, Katie Ammon, and uh, her co-writer and co-producing partner, Sarah Zanotti, they came out with a film called Faye. Have you ever experienced anything... Paranormal here. Is this Jacob? Jacob? Am I going crazy? A disturbed, young, self-help author finds a Ouija board and dies in a cabin in the woods while she's trying to contact her dead husband. (laughs) What? What are you? Is this my punishment? How about I don't write this book? Sober up and get yourself together. I was so mad at him. Why? I know what I have to do. And it was shot all in Louisiana. As far as I know, all in Louisiana. It's about, she's like a successful personal growth author and she's mourning the the death of her husband and she goes out to this cabin as a kind of sort of retreat. Crazy shit starts happening. That's all I'm going to say. But uh, feature film, it was KD, I think it was her second feature film to date. This is someone from Livingston, Baton Rouge area of of Louisiana. This lady now is killing it. She's got Amazon deals and shit like that, but a really good friend of mine and, and I thought I would, I bought it day one 
on iTunes. So, you know, I was like, I got to represent. But then also I thought it would be cool to spread the word on this podcast. How's Faye spelled? I know that's kind of a dumb. No, it's not. I was about to ask exactly the same thing. F-A-Y-E. Yeah, I'm going to look up that movie because uh, I would love to at least support it. Well, I appreciate that, y'all. And I know Katie and Given Sarah that. do as well. I loved it. Um, and it's just cool that it's homegrown, you know. Starring Sarah Zanotti. Yeah, so KD's partner and co-writer is actually a hell of an actor as well. And she fucking kills it. And I found it on IMDb, so I want to go ahead and support this because it's always great to support people, locals from close to where I grew up, as well as uh, friends of friends. Yeah, so. well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I've got that on my list. So my uh, my second recommendation, it's actually a video game. I know, Derek, you've done video games sometimes. And, you know, typically, oh, yeah. you know, even though I would love more horror video games that I get into, me and video games are so weird nowadays, but I played and I beat in a couple hours and it was just like i won't i can't forget it but it was called inside so inside has been brought up in the past i believe wasn't it damien damien brought it up yep who talked about it okay this game is definitely getting around yeah you're you're our second guest who's who's recommended this yeah so the publisher is play dead and their first game that i really got into was called limbo yep limbo is great a great game it's just about this little boy called nameless who's in like purgatory and side scroll platformer of sorts so many brutal deaths and oh bro yeah but i'll tell you so what i loved about inside a little bit more than limbo the spiders and shit in limbo just pissed me off to no avail yeah there were parts that were just got frustrating frustrating. like the the horror lost its edge and it became frustrating yeah yeah inside is more of like a contemporary thing where like it's actually dudes with like weapons and shit that are like chasing you down in this dystopia and it's just from beginning to end it had me hooked and the puzzles weren't as hard i felt as some of the ones in limbo and it just kind of flowed a little bit better but it's very like bittersweet but beautiful as i imagine the you know the writers and the the developers wanted it to be came out 2016 so it's been out for a little bit but you know it's still super fresh uh and people are still playing it so definitely one of my recommendations with Faye this week yeah it's very accessible in that it's always on sale and it's on pretty much every platform steam ps4 ps5 fucking switch it's on all that stuff and because it's been out for at least four or five years now maybe more than that i always see it reoccurring on sale so it's a great indie horror game and it's a very psychological definitely indie horror game yeah too. It, i mean there are there are shocking moments in it but it's it's very much more creeping dread than anything else do you want to bring up master or do you want to oh yeah so you live here too yeah the whole school is cursed Okay, you're, you're gonna have to try a lot harder than that to scare me. Seriously, it's, it's real. I've been having nightmares. You look like you've seen a ghost. Why is this administration spending more energy undermining my tenure than on ferreting out who's been terrorizing the student body? Get away from it, Jasmine. It'll follow you. It's everywhere. It was one of those films that I feel like I'm still tapped into the industry enough to where, like, somebody will say, oh, well, you know, I was at a festival or something and I watched this movie and I just really think you should watch it, blah, 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 blah. That was the first rumbling of Master that I had heard. And I was like, okay, I love, you know, Regina Hall. Like, I love 
what they were telling me about it. And I was like, well, when it comes out, it'll come out because it, it had just started blowing up or, you know, building momentum at a at a festival. And then I remember I saw something on Variety or whatever, and it was like Master picked up for distribution by Amazon. And I was like, oh, fuck. Okay, yeah. so Prime Video is going to be playing it. And they set a date and I was super excited. And then I just kind of forgot about it a little bit. Now we're getting into this, you know, this season of all these movies coming out. And I, you know, I have a six-year-old, so God, I got to go see my movies and I got to go see what Elias wants to see. But uh, I remember I was home one day and my lady was out. I think she was doing a photo gig or something. And I was like, man, I got some time. Let me jump in that Prime Video, which is... I'll be honest, y'all, out of all the apps that I'm in daily, Prime Video is kind of, I don't know why, on the back burner. And that's nothing against Prime Video. It's just always like an afterthought. But I jumped in it and I was like, oh, fuck, master. I've been waiting to watch it. So I put it on. And when I tell y'all, I couldn't fucking turn away. I couldn't. This haunting tale of this young girl trying to navigate what it is to be black in America. It's that old adage of life is stranger than fiction. You know what I mean? But I feel like... Movies like this really give you a dose of, eh, you know, it is, but it's even stranger if you look a certain way, you know, or talk a certain yeah. way or act yeah. a certain way. And this, what was so haunting about it, and, and many, I'm going to let you jump in, but it was just, there's some moments that I thought they did really well that weren't over the top. Like, there, this film is not some fucking, like using all the scares in the book. I mean, I thought everything they did was fresh, but also it was very, like, simple. I don't want to use the word simple in the manner of taking away from it. But it was concise and to the point. Yes, Like, it didn't meet her with anything. It didn't beat around the bush with anything. Like, it was very just upfront with what the themes were. Yeah, same exact thing. I mean, I'd heard about it. I'd heard it was one of the big festival movies everybody was talking about. Turn on Amazon, and then, yeah, there it was one day. So the thing that's really interesting to me about this movie is, you mentioned Regina Hall as the star and I always associated her with the scary, scary movies, movies. Yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah and and it is kind of great to hear that she's in this as I'm guessing this is more of like an indie horror art house horror kind of yes movie definitely yeah so like it's, it's kind of cool that she's now in it alongside Amber Gray is the other big name I'm seeing here and the young girl in the movie Zoe Renee she's pretty fucking fantastic oh she's stellar I'm definitely yeah. looking forward to see her in some stuff in the next couple of years so I guess let me back up this movie is called master from this year 2022 written and directed <laughs> by mariama diallo this is her feature debut starring regina hall like we've mentioned from scary movie series uh she's recently been in insecure which heather and i love black monday support the girls which was also a very interesting indie movie that she was in a couple of years back the premise is a young girl played by Zoe Renee goes to a very elite, very waspy, very old America kind of university up somewhere in the Northeast. It's not really like ever. I don't think explicitly stated where it's supposed to be, but it's, you know, kind of in that Boston-y area. Of course, she is one of, you know, three people of color at this entire university, and so that's immediately kind of awkward and weird, and she's trying to figure things out and, like Kelly said, kind of navigate all the social weirdness that comes along with being very unique and singled out on campus constantly, and people kind of bringing their preconceived notions and biases toward who they think she is. There is kind of this subplot in the background of 
a witch who was tried and hung a couple of centuries prior. There is a girl who committed suicide in the 50s in the room that she's staying in. At the same time, Regina Hall is an alumni of the school. She is coming back to be the dorm manager kind of person. I don't know, like, what's the best way to, like, describe what her title is, I guess? The dorm room mother or, like, like a sorority no, mother or something? it's not quite like that. It's like that, but it's not quite like that. It's way more of, like, an official gotcha. title. And these are, like, co-ed dorms. Well, she was a tenured professor. Because remember, the other lady yeah. was trying to get tenured, but she was tenured professor over the, the title was she was master whatever. Yeah, and she's overseeing this dorm now as yes. kind of part of that title so she's going back to this campus in kind of a new capacity and as she's kind of seeing this young girl struggle a lot of that is starting to come back to her a lot of the same things that she struggled with when she was there and all of these threads are kind of tying together in interesting ways and there's you know some twists that kind of go along with the story as it proceeds one of which my wife totally called very early on (laughs) and she wanted me to explicitly state that on the podcast because that never happened her words she says that never happens and i want you to tell everybody (laughs) i figured it out but it was very interesting it's very captivating and it says very succinctly no frills no bullshit no illusions it completely is this is what it's like to be in a very all-white homogenous very rich very waspy kind of environment and you're the only person that doesn't fit in this is what it's like to be treated differently in every way that you can possibly think of this is what it's like to be you know a professional person and have every moment of your career scrutinized because of who you appear to be very very interesting interesting how it really gets to the core of american history and shows that none of this is new This is all shit that's been going on since the beginning of this country. The entire framework of how so many of our institutions are set up are just systemically not set up with equality in mind. They're just not. You know, the entire backbone of American education is designed in a very white forward traditional kind of way. And a lot of the like well, this is just the way it's always been done, kind of bullshit excuses for things, you know? So the movie's very unsparing with a lot of that criticism. It's very much a gut punch in terms of where the story goes and kind of like the movie we're talking about tonight. It uh, does not have a super happy, yay, everything worked out kind of ending. (laughs) But again, like this movie, just what you're seeing over the credits even says so fucking much about what this movie is trying to say and do it's super interesting i would absolutely recommend it to anybody that wants a pretty solid horror movie really well made sometimes it is maybe not entirely coherent because you're watching moments that you're not sure is this some kind of dream state is this some kind of nightmare going on like am i actually seeing is what's happening right now tangible you know there's moments like that where you're not sure if you're really following things but as the movie progresses it becomes very clear kind of what's happening yeah i dug it i mean for again like a, a day 
debut feature knocked out of the park done like i say all the time i will watch anything that she puts out going forward i'm totally sold on mariama diallo so i will definitely check out anything she's involved in going forward so yeah kelly you got any other thoughts that's it it's because when you start talking about some of the stuff you give away some of the the themes in it you know that are yeah. really really like so i was like oh i want to talk about that listening to you speaking i was like no i'm gonna hold that so yeah i kind of purposely dangled just enough yeah. of a carrot out yeah. there but i didn't want to go too deep either because there's a lot more that the movie's really dealing with yeah so anybody listening if you can check out master it's on uh prime video right now through amazon prime video definitely worth the watch Awesome. Well, uh, Derek, let's jump over to you. What have you got as recommendations for this episode? I know I brought this topic up on a previous episode recently. I first had watched The Missing 411, that documentary. This time around, I went back and watched the follow-up documentary, The Missing 411, The Hunted, which is about strange disappearances of hunters um, in the woods across North America. And it's also for free. I watched the whole thing on YouTube. I think it's everywhere else as well. And this one came out in 2019. So this one's a little more current. This one was a little bit more what I was hoping the first documentary is about. The first documentary had a very kind of more serious tone. Not that this one isn't serious. A little more unsolved mysteries, true crimey. Yeah, like a true crime edge to it. This one's a little more oopy spoopy. This one's a little more like coast to coast in both good and bad ways. (laughs) So let me explain that. I'll start off with the bad ways. David Polides, the former police officer who started investigating the missing 411 and wrote all the books and and basically helped develop those two documentaries. He's actually like directly involved in this documentary. Like it's following him. He's in the documentary the whole time and talking and explaining things. Whereas in the first one, he wasn't, but he's the author of the missing 411 books. I think he's put out over 10 of them or, or about 10 of them. And here's the bad. I looked more into him and before he got into the Mystic 411, he was a big proponent that Bigfoot exists. Okay. And look, I'm not knocking anyone who legitimately believes Bigfoot exists. Cool. I like, I'm into all this. Even though I personally don't think Bigfoot exists, I will still gladly li- listen to a bunch of Bigfoot stuff because it's all fascinating to me. I personally think, as far as like cryptids and unexplained shit and supernatural stuff, there is stuff out there that is far more believable to me, but that's just me. However, because of that and because of all this stuff he's been saying with the missing 411, skeptics have been all over his ass. <laughs> sure. So uh, this guy named Kyle Pollock, a data scientist and host of the Data Skeptic Podcast and sounds like an overall hoot to be around, documented <laughs> all the claims of the missing 411 and presented it at something called a Skeptic Camp, which took me down another rabbit hole and a Skeptic Camp. As far as I could tell, are these little like grassroots meetings and like meetups of scientific skeptics coming together and like just presenting stuff and just being, you know, sticks in the mud, basically. <laughs> It's not quite a conference. They call it an unconference, where it's like a participant-driven meeting, I guess. Whatever. I'm very skeptical about a lot of shit. I would never want to go near these things for the rest (laughs) of my life. Sounds like the worst. But he basically concluded that, at least from an analysis and data standpoint, none of these disappearances that have, have happened as far as frequency goes and all that out of the normal in his data which again i don't really know in like air quotes data yeah 
Yeah, that all the disappearances were caused by nothing unusual, that it was either just sudden health crises like falling or being exposed to the elements and immobilized and then drowning or bear or other animal attacks or even deliberate disappearances by some of these people, which I do think there might be nuggets of truth to some of the deliberate disappearance. Like, that's definitely a possibility. The other stuff, again, with how much these people have fucking, like, searched these areas there'd be evidence anyway i'm jumping ahead you know so the bad side of this kind of more coast to coast style like presentation of the missing 411 he has skeptics already refuting a lot of what he's presented and saying that the analysis and data and like statistics aren't supporting his claims and that it's not any more odd than just the usual disappearances whatever cool all right let's get to the good stuff Missing 411, The Hunted, is way more what I wanted out of the Missing 411, uh, the first documentary. It doesn't quite go full tilt into like paranormal. It really does still stick with these people disappeared. There were tons of professional search and rescue people as well as volunteers searching for them over several days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, and even following up years later trying to find what the fuck happened to them. And like nothing. Sure. Missing 401, for those of you who don't know, it's all about the disappearance in national parks, specifically in America, and David Polides, specifically through looking up these cases found that there actually is no like database for these missing people now that he brought it to light people are wanting a more established database where people can look information up or like report these something i really enjoyed is he goes through the process of how he determines whether or not a case kind of falls into the range of one of these really unusual cases in the documentary he like puts up the criteria at one point and says usually there's a weird weather event that happens during or right after or a lot of these people have some weird physical defect to them like whether it's a limp or they're blind in one eye or whatever sure a lot of these cases always happen with disappearances near water some of it was i felt was coincidence but i still appreciated that he had this criteria checklist and he had like 12 different things so of course cases are going to constantly be hitting at least a couple of these points so that was a little bit of a stretch but he also did these cluster disappearances across the united states where like he actually like showed the map and like showed cluster data points of documented disappearances over so many years i think yellowstone is the biggest cluster as far as weird disappearances go and then once again it presented a a bunch of several cases of just people disappearing and how no one can find them and in this case it's all hunters and a lot of the ones that disappeared are not just hunters they're like established outdoorsmen who have spent their whole lives and granted a lot of them are older i think two or three of the cases were straight up elderly people despite however experienced they may be they are probably a little bit more at risk but these people have been like outdoorsmen for decades even but the thing that's wild to me is they're always armed they always have a gun with them they're always well packed going out they'll have walkie talkies on them they'll have a gps locator they'll have spare food and water on them even the elderly hunters and like none of this shit is found not only is no body found but you would think that they would drop their gun because their rifle's probably pretty heavy if they get lost or whatever and nothing Every one of them had mob debts. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. They yeah. disappear out into the woods to get away from like Johnny Trombone, who's about to go like break their kneecaps. And they're just like, fuck it, I'm going to pack my stuff and I'm just going to go into the woods. And that's just it. They just yeah, never no, right. are heard from again. Either that or they were like, you know what? My insulin costs too much. So I'm just going to cross the border into Canada. <laughs> I'm just going to live there the rest of my life. Yeah, I know, right? But yeah, and then where they start dipping a 
little bit in, into like ooky spooky territory is towards the later part of the documentary where David himself meets up with a group of hunters and they go like out out into the wilderness. They just kind of talk about experiences they've had because they built a hunting lodge out in the middle of nowhere. They built the pathway to get to it themselves. They talked about uh, multiple people talking about just unexplained things happening when you're out there like at night in the forest where it could just be like animals making cries that we just don't have documented that well or whatever and like at one point one of the older hunters plays a recording that they all took from a night out under the stars where like there was a humanoid sounding thing out there and it obviously was communicating with them and with others around it and they said they could hear them like down by the stream like down by the creek from where they were and like they played the recordings and you know of course you know the documentary says like oh we sent to like this audio expert at this college and they said there was no way this was doctored and and there was no way like this was also humans making these noises and blah 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 you know just kind of typical coast to coast hand wavy explanations i'm always skeptical of this kind of shit though because we have owls in our backyard and at least once a week or so we'll hear them legit scream and and they're making like the weirdest fucking sounds talking to each other dude have you ever listened to a barn owl it literally screeches at you yeah so like I don't know how much I buy a lot of that ever because fucking animals make all kinds of weird noises that like yeah. sound oopy spoopy when really it's just there's some horny animal out there that's I'm like, on a branch. Anybody want some dick? <laughs> yeah. That's all that is. That's kind of what I was like thinking about it, but it was still kind of creepy to hear the recording. But yeah, so like this one's a little more like coast to coast. The first one is very more serious in tone and true crime and this one, while also still kind of doing a pretty good presentation of some of these missing cases and how it's really fucking weird that we found absolutely no signs of some of these people. After years later, we still haven't found anything. It definitely dips its toes more into like David, the supernatural Bigfoot hunter, and less David trying to like link a lot of these disappearances. Either way, I still think regardless of if the statistical average over the years still doesn't show anything like that significant, it's still weird that people keep going missing and we can't find zilch any evidence of them after they go missing and it always happens in national parks i think there is enough disappearances over the decades that we should at least have like a database or something you know and again i go back i think there's probably a logical explanation to almost all if not all of these cases you know it could be even something as dumb as sinkholes like again i know i brought that up uh, when i brought the first documentary but like it's probably not anything paranormal but it's still fucking weird sure and these documentaries especially the second one with a little bit of grain of salt do a fairly decent job of presenting like why this is weird and why we should maybe bring a little more attention to like disappearances in national parks but yeah the outdoors is fucking spooky i aaron i you and i disagree completely on camping fuck camping out in the middle of the woods (laughs) and here's yet another reason why spooky shit happens even if it's totally natural and logical camping's great what are you talking about i would way rather die from some wendigo coming and getting me than in a fucking car accident or in my sleep oh well i'll agree with you there i would love to be ripped to shreds by a fucking werewolf but like (laughs) illogically what probably happens is you just trip and fall into a river hit your head head, pass out 
out and then drown. <laughs> <Yep>. Yeah. <laughs> like, so. Yeah, you just get dehydrated and pass out. Yeah, yep. fuck the That's woods. all there is. Or dysentery. But... You just shit yourself to death. Exactly. Some, like, real Oregon Trail bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> hey, and even if you survive, you get cooked by the sun while you're out there. Yeah. You're eaten alive by every fucking insect ever. Fuck the outdoors. <laughs> Well, I will make mine quick. I really only got two things to recommend. So I didn't want to talk about this one until it was wrapped up. But season two of Cursed Films, a Shudder show, has finished. I totally forgot they put out a second season. Yep. Awesome. Uh, So this is a show that kind of details movies that had troubled productions and, you know, kind of posits the idea of was this movie somehow cursed? you know was there like something more going on or were these just a ton of bad luck coincidence kinds of things right this season they cover the wizard of oz which that episode was interesting as much as i have always been a fan of the wizard of oz there was some new stuff in there that i hadn't necessarily heard rosemary's baby is covered tarkovsky's stalker which dear lord radiation sucks man (laughs) That's that's all i'll say about that one serpent in the rainbow which that kind of ties into the movie that we're covering here which we'll talk about in a little bit and coincidentally enough literally like the same fucking day i think that we put out our episode they dropped cannibal holocaust another weird synchronicity (laughs) and they cover a lot of the same stuff that we covered with andrew on that episode did they talk about monkey island and all that they did not quite get in depth with all the (laughs) stuff with that drug lord guy who was secretly funding the whole thing as a money laundering operation but they did bring up the fact that Robert Kerman, the like adult film star guy who was trying to cross over to mainstream and he was the star of Cannibal Holocaust, he was in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. They definitely bring that up, yeah. <laughs> which was my one what the fuck kind of <laughs> crossover thing from that one. So yeah, it's interesting. The whole entire premise of the show is very tenuous at this point because all of the obvious movies like The Exorcist and Poltergeist and things like that, the Twilight Zone movie, like a lot of the more obvious ones that have those storied kind of, oh god, weird shit happened. They covered all those in the first season. So these are very like, lots of bad shit happened? Was there a curse? Mm, No. Right? Like the question at every episode, is this film cursed? Pretty easy to answer with no. It's interesting, at least, if you're down with the the backstory of how movies get made, the bullshit that goes into them, and how there's just sometimes safety is lacking or mistakes get made and things get overlooked sometimes you shoot a movie like right near where there's all kinds of fucking uh toxic waste radiation and everybody on the crew slowly dies of cancer over the next decade just wild shit like that so it's definitely an interesting show as i was gonna say like as far as cursed films go the ones that at least have a little bit of legit spookiness and weird synchronicities or weird coincidences that happened around them where the exorcist and poltergeist are the two i was here and also maybe the omen which i know the first season covered all three of those but when you get to like cannibal holocaust i don't think that was so much cursed as like that production fucking must have been miserable (laughs) yeah 
that movie wasn't cursed. That's just lots of cocaine. That's all that movie is. That's just lots of cocaine and shooting a fucking movie where there's zero fucking safety regulations in the country. So anyway, yeah, the second season of that is on Shudder. That is definitely worth checking out if you're interested in the backstory production history of movies. The other thing I'll bring up real quick, all I gotta say is it's delightful. It's fun as always. The artwork is great. I like the stories. I caught up on the last couple of arcs of Tales from Harrow County, which is a kind of spin-off series written by Cullen Bunn and Tyler Crook. This is kind of taking place 10 years after the original story, which was a girl who is like the reincarnation of a witch in a very idyllic kind of old southern town very kind of similar to oh brother where art thou and it's a lot of her struggle of i am supposed to be the reincarnation of this evil witch that tortured this town previously but i am not evil and you know everybody kind of running her through the ringer and her trying to struggle with what her destiny and expectations are and everything so this is picking up 10 years or so later and it's following the other main character from that story as she is now older and trying to figure out her life really great it's a lot of the same themes that you get from the hellboy comics where it's a lot of monsters can actually be your friends turns out they're not that super scary and turns out sometimes people are the ones that are kind of fucked up and awful so it's definitely worth checking out even though the you know the main story is now concluded these spin-off tales have been pretty solid so far and like we've talked about before anything that friend of the show cullen bunn does i will pick up and read so i've liked everything that he's done so far yeah i've unfortunately fell off tales from harrow county not because i lost interest but between moving and having autumn and all that yeah you're just behind cool so that's gonna be it for recommendations let's get into this episode because we're gonna have a lot to talk about so like we mentioned right up top this is the first entry in our dead boy summer series where we're gonna be covering the three original romero of the living dead movies so obviously we are gonna be kicking it off with night of the living dead from 1968 so here is a taste a taste of what we're gonna be getting into welcome to a night of total terror. (coughs) The dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Night of the Living Dead. A bizarre adventure in fear. An experience in shock more shattering than your strangest nightmare. Night of the Living Dead. Hell yeah. Awesome. So Kelly, you know, we talked about her up top on the episode, kind of where this falls, like as far as your favorite films of all time, it's on that list for you. Something I did want to ask you, though, as far as George Romero specifically, 
you know, we know historically this might be his most important film in his entire filmography. For you personally, where does this film fit? Like, is this your favorite of his? Because I know favorite and best doesn't always like equate. For instance, John Carpenter's Halloween is obviously the better movie, but my favorite is Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. (laughs) So is there another Romero that kind of clicks with you a little bit more? Or is this the pinnacle for you? So this is probably, in my opinion, best, but Dawn of the Dead is probably my favorite. And for me, it was just like being a kid and like, we didn't go to the mall a lot. And so being in the mall, but having fucking zombies, that was just killer to me, like literally. But that was really cool. So that was probably my favorite. And it still is my favorite. And I think think also, and I know we're we're not going to talk about it on this, but I think that's why I like the Zack Snyder remake so much is because Dawn of the Dead is just like my fan favorite. I just fucking love Dawn of the Dead so much. But for all the reasons that we're going to talk about today, there is definitely a lot to like unravel with Night of the Living Dead on so many different levels. Some of it is accidental of how things happen, but what's cool is where the film takes you, who the hero is, and like when the movie came out. All these things shouldn't have been based on, you know, when when it was released to the world. But I know we're going to talk about that some more. Yeah. Well, and the thing that blew me away, I have seen this movie before, but I haven't. Sure. What I mean is I saw it so long ago. I saw it when I was like 13. I think sci-fi was doing a marathon of zombie movies or something. And I watched the TV edited version that sci-fi had on. I think they followed it up with the 90s remake, which also has a small cult following and I think I watched a little bit of that so like my wires got mixed up so I I do kind of think that this was a first watch for me in a a sense the first one that counts yeah that counts yeah and the thing that always blows me away besides the progressive nature with the main character specifically but like besides all that I keep forgetting because it's it's regarded and lauded as one of the most important and greatest films of all time that when it came out it was an independent horror movie Yeah. yeah it had a budget of way less than 150k yep. and like made what like millions in the box office yep just fucking ridiculous and when you're watching it again it, it's one of those movies like when you see a masterpiece when a film can transcend like that or any piece of art can transcend it becomes timeless and like while this has a little bit of datedness in terms of the leave it to beaver kind of almost style of acting that some of the characters are doing which i think also may be intentional you guys can probably educate me on that. Otherwise, the film itself is so timeless that it was shocking even to me, even though it was black and white, even though it came out in 1968, even though, you know, it's not scary in a jump scares like modern sense but it was fucking frightening. This movie goes in darker places than I remembered, Yep. especially by the end. I can picture in my head audiences just being fucking dead silent in theaters after going <laughs> to this, not expecting it to go the way it went. I think where it really clicked for me, like I was watching something ridiculous, and this is a minor spoiler for Night of the Living Dead. After two characters are killed, kind of almost unceremoniously in an explosion, we then get multiple cuts of the zombies, or as they're called in this movie the ghouls just eating their organs fighting over each other with their guts eating their organs when that was happening i was like i know i'm watching something that transcends yeah this is horror on a whole nother level like holy fuck yeah not only does it super super hold up even now partly because we'll talk about this a little bit deeper but it feels very documentary it has that very kind of raw newsreel kind of footage feel to it 
so it makes you feel like you're watching a historical document and not necessarily a movie. Yeah, even stage play like feel to it in some scenes too. A little bit, yeah. yeah. But it's also just so much more raw and extreme than you're expecting any black and white movie to be. You go in and you're expecting kind of hokey 1950s atomic age you know oh yeah the scientists don't know what's going on everybody's coming back from the dead like you're that (laughs) that kind of corny bullshit and it's absolutely not was that intentional like some of the characters almost being like over dramatic like it's a 1950s movie i mean part of that was just the vast majority of this cast were all the actual producers who made the movie yeah you know it wasn't necessarily actors per se but again it almost felt like romero was like here's that nuclear family that we spent the last decade kind of dealing with in the post-World War II world. Now we're towards the end of the 60s. I'm literally going to rip it apart with ghouls. Yeah, I mean, all that's purposeful. Yeah, even the opening scene when they're driving to the graveyard just felt like a leave it to beaver kind of fucking scene. And then like that first ghoul appears and while the fight is maybe a little goofy, like it's still fucking terrifying when you see the ghoul like kind of walking in the background. You know what's about to happen. Oh yeah. And you know these idiots should just all they need to do is turn around and man by the way everyone in this film except the main character born victim like yeah i mean the whole movie in general is very much a hey it's the 1960s tons of fucked up stuff is going on constantly every time that we turn on the news there's something else awful that's happened the status quo is being very very upended in that entire decade vietnam is going on in the background the civil rights movement is going on in the background the feminist movement is going on in the background and the entire movie is just a huge massive middle finger essentially to the 1950s cookie cutter perfect america kind of idealism that is just false it's just not the reality of what you know most people live you even have the husband who like probably was abusive and felt like a 1950s sitcom husband who like threatened to like hit his wife or whatever he kind of is the sort of the bad guy in this movie and he fucking breaks down on a mental level like can't handle what's actually happening yeah and i mean the other big thing before we kind of get into the background of this movie it's just wild to think zombies as a concept you know was kind of around but this movie is really definitively in one movie the thing that completely redefined what this subgenre is what the rules are in air quotes and everything that has come since in pop culture in film and television literature video games music videos fucking charity walks there are zombie <laughs> charity walks now yeah. that people do right the fucking walking dead is one of the biggest shows from the past 20 years resident evil is one of the biggest video game franchises of all time fucking michael jackson's thriller none of that shit would be what it is without this movie having kind of set the template for all of that in 1968 and been such a breakthrough kind of thing to that point kelly you were saying how like you watch this at a really young age did you even know what the concept of a zombie was before you watched this or did this like movie just kind of like here it is no no i mean it was it was definitely that i think i'll be honest i don't remember george ever explaining to me what i watched like real talk by the time he got home or whatever whatever the scene would have been he probably didn't even know what fucking movie he had put on for me before he left the house you know what i mean so like (laughs) it wasn't until i won't say years later but it definitely wasn't until another time where i had an actual conversation or or found out what it was 
Because what it used to be in the house was George would just put any shit on. Like I said, to listen to all those movies, he had this crazy VHS collection. He would just put shit on. And man, it, it it's consumption. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not really understanding what I was consuming, but, you know, holy consumption. I definitely saw this movie at a very early age as well. I think I was also probably somewhere in the range of seven to nine. Definitely saw it on TV because it played on TCM and Sci-Fi Channel all the time. You know, this is one that parents were totally fine with me watching because, oh, it's black and white. Like, how bad can it really be, right? <laughs> and you had the TV edit, which I do remember the TV edit. Not including, like, the brief nudity, like, of the nude zombie or, like, the organ eating or oh, any yeah. of that. So. I remember literally everything from this except for the very brief nudity, which was kind of blurred out. But everything else from this movie, I remember seeing at a very young age because it definitely stuck with me. The girl killing her mother definitely stuck with me. Just the transgressive nature and kind of taboo nature of that happening. Oh God, you can show that in a movie. Fuck. That kind of stuck with me. The ending, obviously, in the fate of Ben. Again, oh shit, you can do that in a movie. What? What is this that I'm watching, right? Yeah. That and just the idea of this is an old movie. They're not supposed to do this kind of stuff in an old movie. It definitely stuck with me. Yeah, but even in 2022, that stuff is still shocking. Like, it's still shocking to see. And to your earlier question to Kelly about were you aware of the concept of zombies before watching the movie, for me, yes. Pop culture-wise, like, I knew what a zombie was. You know, there was kids, little kind of cartoony versions of zombies that you would see during Halloween and stuff. So, like, I knew what a zombie was in general. But I had never seen anything like this before. Gotcha. So like with that, the concept of zombies in film, I'm assuming they had been betrayed before, obviously, but but not like this, not like this, like Night of the Living Dead seems to be the grandfather of the modern zombie. Absolutely. So let's kind of start there. So and before you even start there, Aaron, uh, horror newbies, go fucking watch Night of the Living Dead. It still holds up. It's one of the greatest (laughs) films ever made. It's going to shock you in uh, unexpected ways, especially by the end. It fucking holds up. It's a banger of a film. It's one of the best ever made. Just tune in and you're going to hear all the scary shit, like all the themes that this movie does. But it has social commentary all over the place. It has fucking gore in it, even though it's all in black and white. It's just as important. It feels like as like Psycho. This feels like this is right up there with the watch of Psycho. This feels like something way ahead of its time. If you have not seen Night of the Living Dead, go watch Night of the Living Dead. This is fucking amazing. This is like a capital I important piece of world cinema. Not just American cinema. Like it is very American in the themes that it's dealing with. But like this is kind of one of the movie all timer things. So yeah, like what the fuck are you doing? Watch this. And it's a quick watch. It's only 95 minutes long, I think. Yeah. And guess what? The best part is you can watch it literally fucking anywhere, which (laughs) we'll get into the reason why for that in a little bit. So yeah, just kind of as a base line and we'll revisit a little bit of this going forward because every movie that we're going to cover kind of adds to this little by little and we'll talk about kind of the transformation of the zombie concept into kind of what we know it as now so this is just kind of like a baseline but in general the concept 
of zombies, right? That has been present in both ancient and modern cultures from all around the world. The Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar describes cannibalistic undead conquering humanity in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Fuck yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Chinese folklore from the Qing Dynasty era talks about the Jiangqi. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein has themes of zombieism and reanimation. Ambrose Bierce's The Death of Halpin Frazier, H.P. Lovecraft's Cool Air, The Outsider, and Herbert West Reanimator, which we have recently just covered on the show. And most importantly to this movie, at least, Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, all of which, all of that stuff describes kind of the general concepts of zombieism without necessarily having a word for it. Well, and even, too, like I know when New Orleans and yes. Voodoo and Hoodoo, there is the concept of the zombie there. This is probably more the tourist history version of it, but I, like, what is it? <laughs> uh, zombie powder to basically make an undead slave or yeah. like an undead servant. So that whole side of it, that's where the word zombie kind of comes from originally right the earliest known instance of the actual z word itself comes from poet robert southey's 1819 history of brazil and then later in wb seabrook's sensational really weird exploitation novel the magic island from 1929 that kind of details voodoo rituals and cults and possessed undead thralls in haiti specifically variations of the z word are kind of common throughout several west and central african cultures and all have very similar kind of connotations right so there's kind of two sides of the zombie within that Afro-Haitian culture. So there's the soulless human corpse that is reanimated through necromancy. And then there is just the human soul itself that's captured outside of the body. And both of those halves kind of form this dual-sided side of, like, zombieism. Both of these things are kind of done by an evil sorcerer that's called a bakor, and both things are kind of meant to serve him, right? The spiritual side of it is meant to enrich his power, and the physical body thrall kind of zombie is meant to, like, do his bidding, essentially. The concept of the zombie was kind of this weird folklore children's tale kind of superstition thing that was used to keep control over slaves in Haiti. That's all it was. Slaves were threatened with zombification if they misbehaved and offended the voodoo deity Baron Samedi or if they tried to escape or if they tried to kill themselves because becoming a zombie was a fate worse than death, right? So that was kind of the ultimate bullshit folklore glory kind of thing that slave owners used and manipulated to kind of keep all their slaves in line you know now obviously we also know the concept of a zombie is some confluence and misunderstanding of mental illness in a lot of cases also Derek like you were mentioning the like weird use of numerous natural pharmacological ingredients like pufferfish venom that can simulate a state of death and trance in an individual. So all of that kind of stuff created kind of this original idea of what a zombie is. And so in terms of zombies in film, the earliest examples are things like Victor Halperin's 1934 movie White Zombie with Bela Lugosi and the sequel Revolt of the Zombies from 36. Jacques Turneau 
1943 movie, I Walked With a Zombie, is another one. All of these have the zombie concept in them, but they are all the very, very kind of not aged well, definitely not in, you know, a modern era kind of racial take on zombies. The entire thing is built around fear of black people and fear of these outside, you know, non-white Christian kind of religions. It's kind of wild how much the concept of a zombie has its roots racially really well yeah like it's kind of wild and how the concept of an undead cannibal has been around like you said since mesopotamia epic of gilgamesh basically since recorded history yeah that's kind of where this movie takes both things and kind of transforms them a little bit so the original and definitive in this movie like the z word is never actually said it's a trope in zombie movies even to this day and even fucking walking dead does this in the comic and in the show not using zombie yeah it's a trope that does bother me call them walkers call them ghouls call them whatever right it's fine in night of the living dead because it's the fucking original like of the modern zombie that's fine but there's like a stink of self-awareness to it now yeah yeah Yeah. like where they purposely avoid using the word zombie it gets to the point where it's irritating like we all know what a zombie is anyone who has consumed any fiction of any kind knows what a zombie is just say zombie you're in a zombie apocalypse deal with it just say fucking zombie walker's stupid at this point it might be something like you know actors won't you know they'll say mcbay you know what i mean like it's so ingrained in the history of the telling of the you know these specific stories i think it's just kind of like that running joke or in a way maybe paying homage because like you said like as far back as 1968 romero night of living dead they didn't say zombies like so well, I agree with you 100%, Derek, but I think I think it's more like the people who are producing and, and writing or whatever. They're, it's like the little the little inside joke. Might just be tradition at this point, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. That's a good point. And Romero in this movie, I mean, they specifically use the term ghouls, which that term in and of itself has etymological roots in Arabic folklore. It's like a word for demon. I would say it's something, yeah, yeah. But by yeah. the time Dawn of the Dead came out, multiple movies had used the word zombie and they used the word zombie in Dawn of the Dead despite this movie not using the word at all and Romero had no intention of conflating his flesh-eating reanimated corpses with the notion of Afro-Haitian voodoo culture. Yeah. The two things just kind of weirdly merged after this movie and people were becoming a little more aware of a lot of the gross kind of racial tropes that went along with the original version of this and it just kind of fell out of favor for the most part. Obviously movies like Serpent and the Rainbow came along that also dug into that a little bit further and looked at the original culture of that and in some ways picked apart some of the tropes and then in other ways kind of reinforced them at the same time so like that movie's kind of messy in its own weird way but yeah like at the end of the day so much of what makes the modern Romero take on zombies work is that at the end of the day, they're not otherworldly monsters. They're not supernatural forces. They are your friends. They're your family. They're your neighbors. They're not a Frankenstein. They're not a creature from the Black Lagoon. Like they are literally your loved ones just missing their human essence and they are just these bodies in a, this is like a weird oxymoron, but like a live state of death. 
all having succumbed to this unwillingly, which is what makes it even more anxiety-inducing and something we fear. Funny you bring that up. I, I once read a story somewhere, I think it was a comic, and I can't remember which comic it was in, but the idea for zombies, what if the human conscious is actually still aware, but it's trapped in this animalistic shell? Deep, deep down in there, yeah. Yeah, like so like they can see everything they're doing, but they can't do anything to stop it. I, and that was a concept that terrified me, but that's kind of an interesting take on the beginning of this idea of the modern zombie. The other thing, too, as far as these movies being effective and why we relate to them so much and why they're so popular, zombie movies aren't set in creepy castles. They're not set in exotic countries. They're not set in gothic dungeons. They're not always set in space. Sometimes they're set in space. <laughs> they're mostly set in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. I love that this one, being the originator of the modern zombie, is in the rural America. Yeah. It just takes place over one night. Yeah. It even gets to the point where like, it shows later on, a lot of the mystique and fear caused by the zombies is demystified when it's morning. And like you can yeah. obviously see them way out in the field walking around. It's still eerie, but when it's nighttime and you can only like see shadows until it's they're like, close, yeah. it's yeah. way more heightened. Yeah. And this whole idea too, just, you know, the isolated setting like you said in the middle of nowhere the single location a lot of it is just the natural confluence of the fact that they just had a small budget and it was just necessity that they shot the movie that way and that's the story that they wrote it just kind of adds a weird layer of reality to the story that they weren't necessarily planning on, but it's the kind of thing that helped pave the way for Black Christmas and Halloween and Friday the 13th and all the rest of these slasher movies that are very much the horror is set in your neighborhood, in your home, in your exact sphere of living. You know, the, the horror is happening where you are kind of thing. The movies also set the template for that whole idea of society breakdown and distrust and paranoia and desperation among survivors and all the, the living people are sometimes more cruel and sadistic than the actual undead you know that's always a thing with zombie movies it's like well sometimes the actual people are worse than the zombies so this movie really does just kind of set all of the template for all that shit that goes forward you know it, it really is wild to like look at a movie like this and kind of just see it for like the weird rosetta stone that it is for pop culture for the movie itself this was actually something kelly i wanted to ask you because you, you have this movie so well tied to your childhood is there a specific scene in your mind that stands out for you because the two that stood out for me were the the introduction of the very first zombie or ghoul in this case in the graveyard that set up to the ghoul actually attacking them was fucking masterful suspense horror and then again the scene where like it cuts to the zombies actually eating the dead people for you are there any effective moments in this movie specifically i mean of course the you know zombies eating the the guts and stuff like that like that was really cool and i i remember like whatever age i found out you know manny you might know but wasn't it chocolate syrup or something like that so yeah the blood was mostly chocolate syrup especially in time that it had to be eaten yeah most of what you see them munching on is roasted ham and like <laughs> deli cold cuts and shit sounds good it sounds so good fantastic one of the guys who played a zombie 
owned a butcher shop in the town. And so he was like, yeah, fuck it. So he donated a bunch of the meat. There are some actual animal guts in there. There's some intestines and some liver that you see them kind of fighting over. But like everything that they're eating is just ham. My morbid ass actually did kind of chuckle at that scene where the two zombies are like fighting over the guts. Over the, yeah. And yeah, like yeah. now that you've explained exactly what it is, it makes it even more funny <laughs> to me. I watched the movie with the commentary track on and Romero was just saying like yeah one of the most surreal moments of this shoot was waking up because by the way they shot this movie at this fucking farmhouse in the middle of nowhere they shot there on nights and weekends it was a condemned house so it's not like anybody lived there but they had to stay there and they had to camp out whenever they were shooting because they couldn't pay for security to be there and watch all their shit and uh, he was just saying one morning he woke up and walked out on the front porch and the production designer was just out there with like a glass coca-cola bottle water balloon style filling up these intestines with water and tying them (laughs) off just to make them more jiggly and give them a little more life you know and the guy was just doing it in like the most nonchalant kind of way that george barrow was just like what the fuck to like travel back in time and be a fly on the wall during that production would have been wild but yeah like Kelly, going back to it, like, what were some, like, standout stuff for you? Of course, that's the one that I think everybody says. There's one in particular, that, and I was like, okay, we're going to get to this eventually. It's not just a standout amongst all of them, but it's probably a standout, I guess, above all of them in a way. But the scene where, so you got to think about it. We start the film, right? And we've got Johnny and Barbara, and they're going to the cemetery. And you know, as an audience, we know everything about Barbara, for the most part, right? We have the familiar kind of family ties to her and we know a little bit about her backstory and things like that and then you know something happens to Johnny not trying to spoil the film for anyone who hasn't seen Night of the Living Dead yet but something happens to Johnny and then Barbara goes off on her own you know you're like for all intents and purposes because of this familiarity with her at this point we're growing with her for all reasons we think that Barbara is going to be the hero in this film we're like okay the heroine Barbara's it right okay so we're going we're going yeah Yeah. and out of nowhere basically Ben comes and we're like He says what brought him there, but that's all we know about him. So his story, in a way, is almost like a secondary story, right? Yeah, it's almost like his journey, like, now, like, crosses with hers. 100%. But instead of crossing, it takes that sharp left turn, and now he's the point-of-view character, basically. Yeah, well, we, we get there, but there's a very distinct moment, and I really want this to be said. George Romero has specifically said that Dwayne Jones, he didn't pick him because he was black. He said, I really just fucking picked him because he was the best actor for Ben. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like a happy accident in, in a way. I'd argue he's the best actor in this fucking movie by he, far. He definitely yeah. is. Well, he's the <laughs> only one who actually is a trained actor. You know, yes. he's the only one that really has any experience. Yeah. But to a point, and I know I brought this up when I talked about Assault on Precinct 13 as a recommendation on a past episode, this felt like a movie star making performance. It kind of blows my mind that he didn't go on. And maybe it was because of the ingrained racism in Hollywood in the day. I don't no, this felt like a movie star making role. He fucking crushes it in this movie. It's a little bit of column A, column B. Yeah, yeah. But he was also a theater actor, yeah. first and foremost. So that's gotcha. what his career was in. Well, and he didn't he die at a, in his 50s too? So like he might have died. That too. He died very early, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so then we, we meet Ben and we know no story of Ben at this point other than, hey, I was brought here whatever reason you know what i mean would i forget exactly what he said seen some shit yeah yeah Yeah. so (laughs) and typically watching movies like this 
And of course, I, you know, as a six-year-old, I didn't fucking realize and I didn't feel this way, but there was something that was a visual that has always stuck with me. You know, up to that point, this guy is here. He's basically the support for the white woman. You know what I mean? Like, that's what he's here for. And that's normally, you know, if there were other movies and probably other movies made in that time or even years after, like, okay, he's support for the white woman. But it's when Barbara is going crazy and her dumb ass is about to run out of the house and she hits him. Yeah. And then he slaps the shit out of her i ain't never seen no black man slap a white woman before that's one of the things that makes this movie very audacious because in 68 slap her yeah he also slaps the shit out of harry yeah later on later on as well too (laughs) he He beats the fuck out of him (laughs) (laughs) it's not just a slap he beats the fuck out of him and then spoiler alert for night living dead maybe skip that a couple (laughs) seconds shoots his candy ass too yeah i mean everybody points to the scene in in the heat of the night with that slap right yeah. but like yeah. this movie has just as much importance on like oh shit y'all did that in 1968 and to kelly's point what i love about it is and and everybody involved has kind of said the same thing this was not a calculated thing this yeah. was not a like oh they have an agenda it's hollywood wokeness but there was none of that it was just strictly like hey we knew a guy who was actually a legit actor he was the best actor we had we cast him in this role. The role was written as a like white character in mind, which again, we've talked about things like that before. That just kind of goes back to our very basic cultural biases around, you know, if you are a white person and you are writing characters, probably in your mind, you're intending for them to be just generically white because that's kind of what you know and that's what you relate to, right? But the fact that it's Dwayne Jones portraying this character. Yeah. And then this character is by far the most competent. He's the only one who doesn't seem like he's a character out of Leave it to Beaver. Yeah. Even if it's happy accident, if we're looking at social issues, exactly. political issues, makes it transcend even in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things where, again, none of it was planned. None of it was calculated. They really didn't change the character in any meaningful ways. I That's mean, fascinating. Dwayne Jones filtered the dialogue a little bit because the character was supposed to be a little more like blue collar country. So he kind of filtered the dialogue to just fit his own personality a little bit more which they all did i mean the script in and of itself was more a guideline than anything else there was a lot of improv on the set there was a lot of making up the dialogue as they went that was just part of how they shot the movie but largely the character is as written you know and there's no mention of the character's race at all at no point is anybody look here black man hey i'm not gonna let a black man push me around right there's or none a of hard that. n-word <laughs> so like i because i hadn't seen it in so long i kind of was half expecting what's his face the dad to like drop an n-bomb at one point at some point yeah sure because pretty much any movie that was made at this time that had black people in it race was a factor you know and it had to be brought up because oh god we have black people in this movie and they're existing so we have to acknowledge the fact that race is an issue and this movie just doesn't do any of that so it's kind of the thing where like the movie is so culturally profound and impactful and made such a fucking stir at the time just on the merits of the fact that like i said he's in this movie and he's just fucking existing you know they like didn't plan on that necessarily 
you know, that was never like the calculation from the beginning of this is what we want to do, but it's made that much more impactful that that's just the way it is, you know? I think for me, and I don't know about you guys, I know like we mentioned the slap, but I think the part where Jones really transcends his character is when he's just talking to Barbara, like when Barbara's still kind of in shock. Yeah, that monologue is great. Yeah, yeah, that monologue of where he was and how he got to the farmhouse and what he saw on the way. There's a radio on the truck. I had jumped in to listen to it when a big gasoline truck came screaming right across the road with it must have been 10, 15 of those things chasing after it, grabbing and holding on. Now, I didn't see them at first. I could just see that the truck was moving in a funny way. And those things were catching up to it. The truck went right across the road. I slammed on my brakes to keep from hitting it myself. It went right through the guardrail. I guess the driver must have cut off the road into that gas station by Beekman's Diner. It went right through the billboard, ripped over a gas pump, and never stopped moving. By now, it was like a moving bonfire. Didn't know if the truck was going to explode or what. Still hear the man screaming. This thing is just backing away from it. I looked back at the diner to see if, if there was anyone there who could help me. It was when I noticed that the entire place had been encircled wasn't a sign of life left, except by now there were no more screams. I realized that I was alone with 50 or 60 of those things, just standing there, staring at me. I, I started to drive. I just plowed right through them. They didn't move. They didn't run or just stood there staring at me. Just wanted to crush them. They scattered the air like bugs and it's to the point where like you almost wish you could see that like you could see a prequel of him escaping all that bullshit to get to the farmhouse so much more effective with him just telling her the story almost he makes it feel so believable and it's all the more tragic too given like what happens by the end of this movie and all the more tragic for barbara which there's an argument to be made if anything didn't age well it might be like her character's treatment oh sure but i would also say like a person in shock would kind of be like that as well. Maybe not as overly dramatic and Hollywoodized as it is, but like they would be kind of catatonic, catatonic, yeah, 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 yeah. In, in that state. Like maybe not quite hysterical like that in some cases, but definitely catatonic. Yeah, Barbara's definitely like passive through the entire movie for the most part. But on the other hand, Helen's not, you know, Helen's not like the best character in the world um, in terms of her participation in the story, right? She's not a likable character. She doesn't always come across as a likable person making good decisions, but she's not helpless in the same way, in air quotes, that Barbara is. But it's also fun, too, because the 1990 remake that Savini did swings the pendulum in the complete opposite direction, where Barbara ends up just being like a full-blown machine shetty machine gun badass, badass yeah. right <laughs> so it's interesting how that's been played with over the years regardless and you know to Romero's credit it is one of those things like he at least has the self-awareness in hindsight to be like yeah no we totally could have done better with her character yeah because he wrote the remake right it was Savini who directed it but yeah he wrote the the remake so he wrote that she was a badass and that so yeah that definitely felt like he did her a disservice yeah well even in the movies that we're gonna cover 
you know, it's a different cast in every single one of the three movies that we're going to cover, but every single one has a lead female character in it. Yes. And it's very interesting to kind of watch the progression of how those characters are written and what their agency is within the story and how each movie gets more and more kind of forward with how engaged those female characters are in the story and how they kind of become the center points in a lot of ways. So that's definitely like something that's going to evolve over the course of this whole entire conversation this summer as we go through these movies. I think the coolest thing, like to go a little deeper, the coolest thing about the slap for me is one, yes, just the shock value of knowing that this film came out in 68 and, and you know, a black man slapping a, a white woman. And there was, there was something that I wanted to like connect that to. And I'll get to that in a minute, but just almost like slapping the audience in a way and yeah. in a way like saying, hey, this character specifically is not going to be who you think he's going to be, right? Yeah. Ben is is the lead. And I compare, you know, I know we, we had a, a session where we talked about Get Out. Like I compare as far as the value of, you know, Night of the Living Dead and Get Out. Typically when you have black leads, right? Like I'm gonna bring up Candyman for two seconds, right? So Virginia Madsen uh, and Tony Todd. Tony Todd in every way is a black lead in that film. But you know, even a film like Candyman who the whole essence of the film is about black history is seen through a white lens. Yes. And that's the difference, I think, when you have a film like Get Out and you have a film like Night of the Living Dead and you have these black leads, but these black leads are heroes in a way. You know, they don't come second to or it's not filtered through specifically another lead who actually happens to be white through their lens and their perspective. So I think that's why culturally both of those films are phenomenons in their own right. You know, and I know we're talking about, you know, 1968 and 2018, but it's just really cool. I think that's the biggest thing. And for me, that's what that slap represents is Ben is like, this is who I am. I'm going to take charge. And like, I love that you use the word competent. Derek, he had all these traits of all things that, you know, he should have as a hero, right? Well, and to the point where, like, he's not infallible either. Yeah. Like, he makes mistakes. Definitely. If there is an argument to be made by, like, the end of the movie that maybe going down to the cellar wasn't such a bad idea, but at the time, the reality they were facing, they didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, you know, which also adds to, like, how tragic it is by the end, but at the time, they didn't know that, and at the time, what he thought was the most logical step of reinforcing the house, and then moving on because they were being fed the news and the news was saying report to these areas yeah so then he thought like well we need to escape so like the gas is now the priority you know he makes mistakes him and the other guy you know accidentally like dropping the torch near the gas causing the chain of events to happen that happens and then in the end going down to the cellar might have been the right choice you know granted they had to deal with the little girl who was bitten and infected but it, it was the right choice but it was also the wrong choice for the time Yes, exactly. So essentially, it was the right choice to not go down there. Yeah. So yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's all complicated. And that's what's messy about any of these zombie movies is there's always the question of, okay, none of these choices that we have are good. What's the least shitty choice we have? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Going all the way back to Ben, that's what makes him such a good protagonist is he's not infallible. He's he's a badass. He's competent, but he's not untouchable either. Um, And he makes mistakes as well. Kind of interesting you brought up tony todd because isn't tony todd
Todd Benjamin in... Uh, He's been yeah. in the 1991. Yep. In the 1991, yeah. And to take it a step further, too, with that slap, Kelly, not only is it him telling the audience, I'm not the character you think I'm going to be, it almost feels, too, like this is not the movie you think yeah. it is. Yeah, Again, yeah, we yeah. had like this very dramatic Leave to Beaver kind of setup, and some a lot of the other characters are acting that way, but like it almost felt like, no, this is your wake-up call. Like You don't know what's coming. I would argue from the explosion on, it becomes what you think a modern zombie like this is not going to end well for anyone dark as fuck tragic ending yeah and that's kind of where like that ball really starts rolling one of the things i was reading about was the premiere mostly because roger ebert while he claims that he initially like he really enjoyed the film he winded up only giving it i think like three and a half stars but mainly because he was pissed off about the premiere because the premiere he went to like apparently children were let in it was a kitty matinee yeah Yeah, it was a kitty matinee like there was just filled with children and like oh fuck that he was pissed off at romero and the theater owners for allowing children to see this movie <laughs> but the thing that made me laugh he's like yeah you know in the first 20 minutes the kids were all laughing and excited and thrilled because it was a zombie movie but then by the end no one was saying anything <laughs> the kids were fucking crying yeah just broke their brains like legitimately scarred them psychologically for a very long time i enjoy looking at roger ebert reviews over time especially but you know he's always been tough on horror uh, uh, no i'm not gonna candy coat it he's a pain in the ass when it comes to horror i understand his legacy to film but like anytime i'm reading something about with him about horror it's very eye rolly and face palmy to me <laughs> but the main thing with that whole entire criticism is it has nothing to do with romero it has nothing to do with the movie exactly it just has everything to do with the fact that this particular theater owner was kind of a dum-dum and scheduled this movie during a time in which children would normally be coming in kids are getting dumped off by their parents on a saturday afternoon they're expecting to watch some dumb 1950s sci-fi trash whatever and then yeah they're getting smacked in the face with the harsh realities of the 1960s you know just (laughs) right here in a fucking horror movie real quick a question i had for both you guys actually another thing i appreciate um and this is a trope that i do enjoy that is used a lot with zombies but i do enjoy it is being ambiguous about what is causing this problem sure like why people are reanimating when they die the movie hints at abnormal levels of radiation that were brought from space from like venus basically from an exploration from the probe satellite yeah. or probe yeah but even like the newscasters sound like they're grasping at straws for that explanation but was that also kind of like a tip of the hat by romero to like the old 1950s thing from another world kind of outer space being this thing that causes these otherworldly events to happen kind of old school monster movie sort of sci-fi i wouldn't doubt it didn't dawn of the dead it I, I man i don't remember but not just the remake i think they talked that line in the remake and that was kind of like a nod to the original but then they even take a religious stance where it was like when there's no more room in hell the dead will walk the earth like wasn't that the fucking that tag was kind line? of the tagline right yeah. yeah which that is way creepier and yeah. more oh, badass fucking right. yeah <laughs> you know being someone who growing up religious i'd be like bro it's fucking scary. (laughs) There's something, we'll get into this in a little bit, but there's a different version of this movie where there's some alternate scenes and there is a moment of a preacher on the TV who's talking all this doom and gloom and revelation and end times and all that. And we definitely kind of see that as a thread throughout all these movies. Well, don't they all take place in the same timeline? Like at least the three or four Romero films? 
films like they're not tied together and that no reoccurring characters but they uh, happen all in the same timeline right i mean to a degree i mean you'll see what i mean once you actually start to watch them i mean it's not like they're all happening exactly at the same time oh no no i i meant like night was like the beginning of the crisis but then it never ended and it goes into dawn and then into to a degree you know so because i mean you see in dawn as well oh this crazy thing is happening everything's falling apart we don't know what's going on you kind of see the beginning of it in dawn as well too the story just goes on a lot longer and day is explicitly set much much later afterward after everything's kind of already been happened right yeah but one thing i do like to my recollection none of the movies like really ever explicitly discuss what the cause is none none of them ever pinpoint exactly what it was and they just kind of leave it ambiguous but over time it's interesting to hear the characters kind of all talk about and speculate about what they think it might have been and you definitely hear people who have more of a religious bent to that conversation so it's never explicitly stated but the possibilities are just kind of always there the tagline from dawn of when hell runs out of room the dead walk the earth like that's a fucking amazing tagline yeah even though like it never really fully <laughs> really leans is. into like the supernatural side of things yeah so a couple things too like when it comes to tropes that were established with night of the living dead i'm assuming right off the bat the idea that we are the walking dead you know everyone points to the walking dead for that trope of oh anyone who dies and doesn't die from like brain trauma basically will reanimate in an hour or something into a zombie it happens here in this movie to two characters that die on screen and reanimate minutes later yeah this is not the type of zombie movie that is infection based yeah the way that lots of other ones are neither is walking dead at least in the comic they always leave it ambiguous as to what's happening but the big point is like we are the walking dead when they realize that like when people die in a couple hours they it's come back already as a in them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah but like that happens here in night of the living dead the idea of a bite infecting you happens with the daughter character so that's established here the idea of brain trauma shooting them in the head or doing enough force to the uh, head puts them down for good that's introduced here something that is kind of interesting to me and this seems like more of a romero zombie thing and this kind of more leans into like them being more like ghouls than zombies is the idea that they still retain a little bit of personality and some intelligence because of the idea of them using tools, using things to hit people to the point where the little girl zombie uses that spade to literally stab her mom to death, not even to like eat her mom to like literally stab her to death. It almost was reminiscent of the psycho shower scene. Yeah, that idea kind of comes and goes with the movies depending on what the plot requires if i'm being honest i remember that in was it land of the living dead where which again is like kind of in the same time scale or like these series of movies is that the one where like they use fireworks to distract zombies at one point i think they did that in land yeah you're talking about land yeah. Of the dead, yeah but uh yeah i did remember seeing land in theaters i did too i don't know what what possessed me to go watch it because i at the time i wasn't really big into horror movies and this was pre-walking dead so like the zombie resurgence of yeah. uh, modern times wasn't quite happening but like i for some reason decided to go see land a huge plot point of that is that one of the zombies becomes more aware and leads the zombies and like teaches them how to use tools and then coming back to this movie night of the living dead and when the first zombie is introduced in that amazing graveyard sequence it's already using a rock yeah. and i'm like oh shit so it's it's interesting that these tropes of the modern zombie a lot of them have stuck around but the idea of zombies having a little bit of personality or using tools 
to like get into things or like break the car or kill someone before like trying to consume them. It's interesting that that didn't necessarily stick with the trope of the shuffling zombie. It seems like with like Walking Dead and those other type of zombies, they are very mindless and they're not necessarily fast either. And that's where Dawn really goes. Dawn is really the like slow shambling zombies that are completely mindless that are just walking into walls and shit. Day kind of gets into the idea of there's still something in there. And if you tap into that enough, you know, you can maybe make that zombie remember who they were and remember certain things. And land kind of goes a little bit further with that idea as well. It doesn't necessarily stick entirely. You know, like you said, these zombies kind of move at different speeds. It's not like explicitly, oh, slow zombie, fast zombie, whatever, which we'll, we're going to have that discussion later with another movie anyway. But the whole idea idea of how much of that person is still in there is interesting and it yeah. kind of changes from movie to movie but it's definitely something that the movies start to explore over time as this entire subgenre kind of evolves well the thing that's amazing to me is no other like zombie media has done this before except for maybe land for me the idea that each zombie almost has a different personality like each zombie was very distinguishable in this movie to me especially like the graveyard zombie and spoiler alert Barbara's brother like coming back and almost point where like when he's revealed it almost seems like there's an awareness he has that that's a sister because he like lunges for her grabs her and like pulls her out into the horde and the little girl zombie first thing she does to her mom is purposely grabs the spade off the wall like each zombie in this seemed way more distinct from each other than other zombie media and like that's amazing to me along with the idea of them like using tools and objects to harm people not just trying to bite them. It's interesting that that doesn't carry over more into the modern zombie-like trope. Yeah. Let's talk the backstory production history of the movie a little bit. So Romero himself, he attended Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Uh, You know, all these movies are famously kind of centered around the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, which is interesting because it makes it more regionalized in a way where, you know, most people would be like, no, it's just New York. It's Chicago. It's (laughs) LA, right? He co-founded a production group called The Latent Image with his friends John Russo and Russell Striner. They were all college buds and they formed this group to basically just make commercials and news content and industrial films and things like that. And they finally just got to the point where they were growing creatively stagnant and they were like, fuck it, let's make a movie. Let's just finally make a movie. Let's do a horror movie that seems like we could do fairly easily and turn a quick buck. They basically got with another production group the Hardman Associates, Inc. group, which was Carl Hardman and Marilyn Eastman, and they formed a new company called Image 10. And so they got together with a couple of other people, and they crowdfunded all this money, essentially. They put their own money in, they raised money from outside investors, but basically these 10 people got all their pennies together. Uh, It was about $114,000, which would be just under a million dollars today, and And they made this movie. Could you imagine nowadays a movie on a budget less than a million coming out and having the impact that Night of the Fucking Living 
living deadhead back in 1968. Well, I mean, yeah, because it still happens from time to time. Every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. Paranormal activity was kind of like that, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, and that was, and that actually was a hundred, what was it, a hundred thousand? Something like that? It's something around there, yeah. But I would argue, like, while it's financially successful, I highly doubt paranormal activity will have the cultural impact. It won't. Cultural impact, no. Because they fucking, what, there's ten paranormal activities now? Yeah. I was like, it's just begin- it's getting too big, you know? what i mean like and it's all about money i would argue the simple answer is 1968 there weren't that many things out there at that point yeah yeah now like now we're at pop culture nowadays like like, every fucking idea under the sun has kind of been done so it's really tough to find something that is going to be that breakthrough and revolutionary but there's still plenty of movies that in terms of start with a very tiny budget have a maximal payoff there's still movies like that fairly consistently i know that i just meant like the whole package of cultural impact go down as an important piece of art definitely harder now i think especially for that price point i've seen it so many fucking times but like in the past couple days like i've kind of just had it on in the background or whatever but i i don't know like many i know you would get it right on the head Derek I think your sense of like watching more movies now and whether horror or not but one thing I noticed that I was like man I don't think I've ever noticed that before it's very seldom that they're not on sticks and when I say sticks Derek I just mean a tripod but like I say 98% of this film is on a fucking tripod it's little pans and tilts like to me that's incredible because movies aren't just they're not made like that anymore yeah it's not from a hey less is more sometimes or excuse me, less isn't more sometimes. It's from a, I've got to have this aerial. Everybody wants to be Michael Bay now. And what I mean by that is a lot of people think this and that, but they forget that like, yo, the fucking camera movement needs to serve the story. You know, we call it in yeah. the industry, the mise song, right? Everything means something. I'm looking at this on uh, iTunes. It actually is the Criterion remastered version, but like it looks fucking good, but also like I forgot how well it looks, if that makes sense. Just the composition yeah. and... But you're but you're absolutely right, even from a casual viewer standpoint, which I still count myself as like a casual movie viewer compared to you guys, but even I can tell like when they're trying to do too much yeah. to just be showy. And it, it's not just Michael Bay. Michael Bay is the easy target to yeah, make de- fun of, but def- like it's definitely. competent filmmakers too. Like, you can make that argument with, like, a lot of the MCU people and fucking uh, James Cameron, you know, coming back into play with uh, the Avatar sequel. Sometimes it's all like you're just showing off, basically. And, I mean, you can make an argument that this whole movie is a perfect example of less is more. Because, yeah, despite this coming out at a time where maybe the idea... The idea was extremely fresh and there wasn't nearly anything like that. Now we're in a very saturated pop culture world, but still, like, you can still learn the lesson of less is more from this movie. Definitely. Even if the idea now isn't so much original. But, like, that filming technique, that idea that you were saying, like, who uses that nowadays? There are probably filmmakers out there now who could film in a style like that and really produce something amazing. Well, this movie's interesting as well, too, because they had enough of an idea of what they were doing. But then at the same time, they really didn't. So like you said, this movie is not overly showy and overly stylistic and oh, look 
at what we're doing and drawing attention away from the story. Kind of like Halloween. It feels... Halloween's more formalist than this, though, because there's definitely things in this movie where, like, they didn't even understand the basic concepts of screen direction. And that's one thing that Romero looks back at later and is like, oh, we had the camera all over the fucking place, and we really shouldn't have done as much of that as we did. But that's just one of the things where they didn't really have that in their vocabulary at the time. So I think my argument more was they both feel like first movies or or among first movies but also they don't feel incompetent or they still feel dangerous and like raw this is raw energy and this is the beginning of uh, someone special's career but they still felt competent enough that it didn't feel flawed if that makes any sense this isn't blood rage levels of energy you know this is legitimate filmmaking even though there is still an amateur edge to it almost like a new hope the episode four star wars like lucas knew kind of what he was doing at that point but that was still very much these are a bunch of young kids making a movie a sci-fi movie and it turns out to be like a cultural juggernaut same with this they're making a zombie movie maybe at the time it doesn't feel like they realize what they are doing but like what they're doing is incredible yeah i mean i would maybe argue that both carpenter and lucas for where they were when they made those movies they definitely had more experience and they definitely knew more of what they were doing then that makes night of the living dead even more amazing to exactly me. yes so much <laughs> of this movie really is they were figuring it out as they went that's fucking amazing (laughs) marilyn eastman who is one of the original producers and investors in the movie she plays helen she was also in charge of the costumes and the makeup and she's even said the makeup got better as the movie went because i was learning what i was doing and i was getting better (laughs) at it as it went on you know and obviously they didn't shoot the movie in sequence So it's interesting because you see different stages of the makeup at different parts of the movie as it's kind of progressing, but it actually works because you're, you know, you could chalk it up to like, well, there's different states of decay that we're seeing from these zombies. Or we're seeing more zombies now. So like we see the different versions of them. They were really, really figuring a lot of this out as they went. And there were still a lot of things that they struggled with. I mean, listening to the commentary track, they struggled with the audio. They struggled with the mix. They struggled with the editing just tons and tons of stuff where they were just figuring it out you know so so much of why this movie works i think is still just because they brought a very bare bones and like no bullshit filmmaking style that's reminiscent of what news looks like you know these guys came from making commercials and industrial videos and things like that so there's nothing flashy about the filmmaking like we've been saying well so it's amazing to me that you you mentioned that the actress who played helen is one of the major producers and also as the lead makeup artist oh they all were every one of the people who like started that company they all are basically in the movie they all had different roles on the production like this is basically a team of 10 people who made this entire movie and did everything well the thing that's interesting if we want to go back to like the whole progressive take of this movie uh not just with jones's casting as ben but also that a woman was in a position of power in the production of this movie in 1968 you know before 1968 when they were actually shooting it was that common by then in movies or was that still very much not the case there were lots of women involved in productions just not necessarily female producers that was more uncommon yeah that's so that's like another like maybe happy accident but still like really interesting social aspect to this movie yeah 
looking at the script and everything, this whole movie started as a horror comedy. What? And it was supposed <laughs> to be about teenage aliens landing on Earth <laughs> and befriending humans. Fucking what? Yeah, that evolved into a boy discovering a conspiracy of alien flesh eaters, humans being harvested for, like, aliens to feed on. So it was just gonna be, like, to serve man? Basically, yeah. (laughs) But at the end of the day, Russo reworked the entire story basically over a long weekend. Like, he kind of got tired of, okay, we've been working on this forever. He just kind of locked himself in for a long weekend and just really hammered out the base concept concept of reanimated human corpses that are cannibalistic again ghouls not zombies and the outline that he came up with was essentially a three-part story which would serve as the basis for the three movies dawn is the second part of that day is the third part of that story so that original treatment kind of outlines all three parts ellie did you know all this not the russo part no i didn't know that there was a pre-planned you know night dawn day i, I didn't know that yeah at all. i didn't and, realize that and I, i'll be real like there's some there's some films if you ask me like there's some writers that I just fucking know. And Russo, like, I, I've never really delved deep into the, I guess, the behind-the-scenes writing of Night of the Living Dead. I didn't know anything about fucking the aliens and shit. I didn't know about that, so that's cool. <laughs> yeah. It kind of think makes me think of Night of the Creeps, which we covered on in one of our early episodes. A little bit, Yeah, oh, yeah. Sure. fucking love Night of the Creeps, bro. But, like, uh, also, too, kind of going back to your point, Aaron, of all these people being in this movie themselves. He actually was in the movie. He's he's the ghoul who gets stabbed yep. in the head. Yep. <laughs> yeah, all, like I said, all of them were involved with the actual production of this movie. Marilyn Eastman, again, she plays Helen. She was the supervisor for makeup, special effects, and costumes. Striner played Johnny at the beginning. Russo played the zombie that took the tire iron to the head and was also doing the fire stunts. Stravinsky was a production designer. Like, they all did shit on this movie. It's kind of amazing none of them got injured while shooting this. <laughs> Listening to the commentary track, there were just so many moments of, oh yeah, those hands poking through the door. That's like, what, me, you, and uh, Joe? Isn't that like, oh yeah, 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 that's all of our hands. Hilarious. Yeah, just so many yeah. of those moments were like, you don't need other people, just who's already here just shove your hands through right okay so anyway yeah the script as is right and the kind of initial concept and everything drew really heavily from richard matheson's i am legend mentioned at the beginning of the episode which that is about a lone guy struggling to survive in a world where everybody's turned into vampires just the idea of that isolation everybody in society kind of becoming this monstrous thing and society breaking down a lot of that idea was kind of what informed this story you know and obviously i am legend got adapted into three different fucking movies right but you know romero and all All of his team, they were all very politically active people. And so he kind of saw the, like, nuggets of revolution that were in that story. And he wanted to kind of bring some of that into this. Where you would have this handful of survivors who are standing against kind of this wave of this onslaught of this monstrous 
new society that's falling apart around them, right? He wanted the bleak tone. He wanted the no way out Stark ending. Everybody on the team was like fully, this is what our vision is for this movie. Talk about another zombie story trope, the no way out dark ending. That happens a lot with zombies. He basically said, I wanted us to forget we were making a horror film and I just wanted everything to appear as though these people in this house were just worried about a snowstorm that was coming he didn't want it to be that self-aware necessarily which again leads to like how believable everything feels because it feels like a survival movie first in a lot of scenes yeah like especially like the more intimate in the house scenes where you forget the dead are just outside stalking them you're right you could take some of those scenes and just replace it with any other natural disaster it still works which i like that idea a lot there's not too much focus on the zombie or the ghouls yeah when they are in play it really matters and it really is effective like i mentioned earlier the script kind of evolved organically while they were shooting there were a lot of rewrites for the dialogue hardman and eastman who played helen and harry they were both kind of modifying their dialogue as they went judith o'day improvised a lot Dwayne jones improvised a lot so you know the script wasn't always like a set in stone kind of thing but the fact that they were all there and had all contributed to the story and were all kind of evolving the story as they went. You know, everybody still stayed on the same page, kind of thematically, essentially. To keep the production costs low, because again, keep saying this is an independent movie, they specifically designed the story to be set in a one location, rural, isolated setting. No sets were built, no having to worry about getting special permits, no having to like shut down traffic. You know, you think of so much of the zombie movie bullshit where you see a whole town that's desolated and everything's falling apart. You gotta shut down city streets, and that's tough. You gotta drag fiery cars and busted up buildings and all this bullshit out in the way like making that kind of disaster movie is very logistically difficult you know so with this being a small budget kind of thing they picked and choose what they did very specifically did they have to get permits for um the cemetery scene because that was a real cemetery right i never really read anything about them having to deal with any kind of permits necessarily i'll be real i've shot at cemeteries and haven't gotten any kind of show i know they probably didn't you know just because the essence of that film really feels like Robert Rodriguez calls it guerrilla filmmaking. You know what I mean? Like, Manny, you keep talking about, well, she did this and he did that. The greatest thing about that is it's like family. Who better to act in some of these things other than the people that want to see it get made? You know what I mean? And I think think there's an essence of just truth there that really spills out onto the screen where like it's just made from love. Yeah. Everybody here was very, very, not just creatively invested, yeah. but like they all put money in. Yeah. They all put their actual money on the lines to make this movie. And fucking they amazing. They all in on getting the thing done. What a good bet. <laughs> yeah, I just asked that because I, I know that that gravestone that Barbara clutched, I was reading that that was a real gravestone and there was actually a picture of it from like 2017. Oh, man. Yeah, so it's still there. Yeah. 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 So they actually shot in the Evans 
cemetery. So Evans, yeah. Pennsylvania is like 30 or so miles north of Pittsburgh. Yeah. And everything was kind of shot there. And, you know, to the point about like permits and that kind of shit, most people in the town were just like, y'all hear they're shooting a picture here. Move, yeah. And everybody was like all about it. So they, you know, they weren't really hassled about permits and that kind of shit. That is true. That's the time. <laughs> I think now, yeah, it'd be different now, probably. Yeah. Depending on how big the cemetery is. Sure that there's a little bit of tourism around Night of the Living Dead now. And that's oh, there totally is. Yeah. There totally is. I think there was like a zombie jamboree kind of thing that happens there fairly often. Other things that they did. So by this point, color film was very commonly used. Yeah, yeah. They shot on black and yeah. white specifically because it was cheaper and because they wanted to kind of give it that raw news footage kind of feel. Well, did they also do it to get a little more gore in there too? Or was it more just... So we're going to get to that in a second. Censorship and ratings and all that had not not really started yet. Gotcha. MPAA came out like a little bit after this film was released. Literally a month gotcha. or two afterward, yeah. yeah. So they did not actually hire a composer. They did not score any of this movie. They did not record anything original. Every bit of music in this movie is library music from the Capitol Haiku collection. Fucking works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was literally all royalty free, pre recorded music that was just available and you could just use it whatever you wanted. Well, now it's Night of the Living Dead music. So, yeah. The farmhouse itself was a condemned house. Oh, wow. And so they were able to be rough with the location and not give a fuck about the condition of the house, which, you know, you see them nailing shit to the walls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Tearing that house up. It's because they could. But that also meant that while they were shooting at this place, there's no running water. There's no yeah, active plumbing. Yeah. There's no electricity necessarily. So they were kind of miserable while they were there shooting the movie. And again, they were having to like camp out essentially and stay in the house over the weekends while they were shooting, you know, boiling water and just kind of taking like sponge baths while they were there <laughs> and having to like bring food and stuff in from the town so it was pretty miserable apparently they were all just like sleeping on cots and couches and stuff like that the location now is actually just a commercial turf farm so the house is definitely not there anymore yeah. all the clothes that the zombies wore were all secondhand and goodwill clothes that they could tear up and destroy <laughs> I, I looked that up yeah chocolate syrup blood the ham and all the meat in the entrails was all donated from the local butcher shop but yeah they filmed this movie over the course of nine fucking months because they just shot on weekends and random nights they started in july 67 and they finished filming in january of 68 which is just fucking bananas you both have worked on movies kelly you have made your own features have y'all ever worked on anything that long nope no <laughs> that nope. sounds a little miserable to me i have a friend who's she's actually i don't know what department she's in but she's working on avatars right now these are some people that they're like whether we like it or not, we got literally like six years of fucking production work hey. that we don't have to worry yep. about, you know? So, True. That, yeah. but but no, I've never worked on anything that long. And what's dope, though, is there's a great sense of just vigilance 
like we talk about Romero. Yeah. I didn't know the nine months, but you know, like Christopher Nolan's The Following, he shot it over a year and literally he would only shoot on weekends. And I think it's stories yeah. like that that really give me like, I get bummed out because I normally have a vision in my head and I'm like, okay, this short or whatever, I want to do it over X, Y, and Z. I think that's the greatest thing is like you, there's no reason to to rush. I think sometimes filmmakers just feel like they got to do this or do that or got to rush this or whatever. And I don't know, man. I, I, I think it's stories like these that are like, fuck, like they did it this way and it worked. Yeah. The following is, is great. And of course, Night of the Living Dead is one of the greatest horror films ever made. So it's just bonkers to me. Yeah. I think it's different when you're working with your friends. Yeah. And you can all kind of coordinate your time and schedules a little bit easier versus, oh, I'm shooting a feature and I have this random actual star that I paid to like fly in for one weekend and we got to get all of their stuff this one time. And if we don't get all of it, oops, we fucked up. So, you know, I think there's a little bit of flexibility there when it's all people that you know and your buds with. Yeah, well, it's just bonkers to me, though, that regardless of that fact, with how low of a budget this was, they went nine months. Yeah. And so while they were filming, the movie was originally titled Night of Anubis. And then they changed the title to Night of the Flesh Eaters. Night of the Living Dead is so much better than either of those. Yeah. Ultimately, like once they were done with the movie and it was edited and they had ready to go prints, they literally just blasted up to New York and started looking for a distributor. They were struggling to find a distributor at first because everybody they went to wanted them to soften up the violence, soften up the gore, and everybody wanted them to reshoot the ending. And to their credit, they were all like, fuck you, we're not doing it. So ultimately, they landed with the Walter Reed organization. And they kind of came up with like a 50-50 deal. And they agreed to exhibit the film uncensored with the caveat that the title be changed to Night of the Living Dead. Another happy accident yeah. like that makes this there, Well, yeah. this is where everything goes sideways. So there was already a movie called Flesh Eaters. And they said, okay, well, the title's too similar. Change it to Night of the Living Dead. That title change inadvertently caused a massive copyright debacle. We'll talk a little bit about it right now obviously but we'll really get into this with the next episode and the movie that we're going to be covering there but the gist of the whole situation is there is a copyright logo you know stamp that you essentially have to put on the title card of your movie well they had that on the first two titles of the movie night of anubis and night of the flesh eaters and when walter reed wanted to change the title they did not put the copyright notice on there Oof. so what happens is, because of how the copyright laws were set up at the time, the movie played its first public viewing without that copyright, which meant that the movie instantly is public domain. No recourse, no going back from that. It is now a public domain entity. That's it. Done. There was no fixing that. Like we said a second ago, this movie was also not rated officially because the MPAA did not exist until about a month or so after the movie came out. So, you know, all of that, all of that, all of that was really, really complicated and messy. You know, the film was also like immediately a success and it was also immediately a con controversial film there was all of this stir around the movie immediately and the entire situation with the copyright really fucked things up 
So it premiered October 1st, 68 in Pittsburgh. Like we joked about earlier, it was shown at like a Saturday matinee time slot where kids would normally attend. And, you know, lots of kids got fucked up from seeing this. Lots of critics (laughs) were already starting conversations about censorship and how far is too far with the violence and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, Americans are getting fucking raw ass Vietnam gore footage like pumped into their houses every night on the nightly news, right? This quote in particular is one that I pulled while I was doing all my research. So this is from Variety. Until the Supreme Court establishes clear-cut guidelines for the pornography of violence, Night of the Living Dead will serve nicely as an outer limit definition by example. In a mere 90 minutes, this horror film, pun intended, casts serious aspersions on the integrity and social responsibility of its Pittsburgh-based makers, distributor Walter Reed, the film industry as a whole, and exhibitors who booked the picture, as well as raising doubts about the future of the regional cinema cinema movement and about the moral health of film goers who cheerfully opt for this unrelieved orgy of sadism. <laughs> all that does is make me want to watch, watch it more. more yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's always been the case with any of this kind of oh my god censorship. We have to keep people from watching this. It just makes people want to watch it more. But despite the mostly negative critical reception, the movie was a massive fucking financial hit. Yeah. Which is even Unsurprising. more because of its immediate crash into public domain. So, again, as a result of all that, the movie's been readily available for free since the fucking birth of home video, VHS, the (laughs) internet. There's literally hundreds of unlicensed home video releases on all formats and always has been. There's over a hundred DVD releases of this movie alone. And back in the day, figuring out which VHS tape you really wanted to get was tricky because so many of them were just copies of copies of copies and the quality would just be shit. So it was like a real struggle to figure out, okay, is this version that I have really good? Yeah, the ones that you guys watched, were they like legit versions? So, I mean, what we probably watched growing up I would imagine wouldn't have been like that bad considering like I watched it on cable and Kelly watched like an actual VHS of it. Yeah, mine was on VHS. You know, who knows what the quality of that VHS was because again, so many were unofficial copies of copies of copies. It's probably a second or third generation, yeah. 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 So, you know, who knows what it looked like originally, but you can literally watch this movie on YouTube. You can watch it on Internet Archive. You can watch yeah, it it's, anywhere. It's everywhere. It is on pretty much any every streaming entity at the point because why the fuck not but the best version of it that is available right now is the one that was associated with the museum of modern art that criterion used for their release that's the version i watched yeah it is a 4k remaster it looks gorgeous criterion has a blu-ray of it out it is streaming yeah it does look it's really, amazing it looks really good it looks really really good so that is by far the best way to watch it i'm pretty sure the version that that is on HBO Max is probably the Criterion version. That's the best version, but I mean, pretty much anywhere that you find this movie streaming, it's going to be at least decent at this point. But to add insult to injury with the whole copyright bullshit, they know for sure, like I said, they had the copyright notice on earlier title cards for the film. But the building that Romero, Russo, and Striner used for their original company that they operated out of flooded. Jesus. And so the original 35 millimeter 
prints, still photographs, press kits, posters, the that's outtakes, all of ridiculous. that shit got destroyed. That does suck. So even their like last ditch, hey, we can definitively prove that we had the copyright notice on yeah. these original versions of the movie. Please give us another chance. Just even that went out the door. We'll never get any of that extra content either. Some of it has been recovered. So on the Criterion release, there is the like Night of Anubis work print cut. And there is some different stuff in it. There's some stuff that's left out. I watched it a couple of years back when it first came out because that was like the first time it had been available. And it's negligible. It has a slightly different score and some different music cues and things like that. But it's not the best version of the movie. You yeah. know, it's definitely a work print for sure. But yeah, ultimately the film would go on to gross somewhere around 12 to 14 million dollars domestically and over 30 million dollars worldwide which at the time made it the most profitable horror film ever produced. And Image 10, that team, sued the Walter Reed organization for underpayment, but then Walter Reed filed for bankruptcy in 77. So Jesus. ultimately, Image 10, like in bankruptcy court, they agreed to remove their names from the creditor list in exchange for actually getting the rights back. Mm. Yeah. So it's been like this massive fucking mess since always. But yeah, the fact that none of these people saw their money back is one of the most infuriating things. The movie went on to be such a massive, massive thing, and none of these people got their money back. That's always been one of the big things in the horror community, right, is Romero never got to really enjoy his success in a way, at least from this film, right? Yes, and all of those original kind of masters of horror guys at various points have all been fucked over in similar ways. I mean, that fucking Carpenter basically didn't see a dime from Halloween, yeah. you know? Toby Hooper got massively screwed over on Texas Chainsaw because, oops, turns out the mob was kind of investing in that movie and they had no idea. <laughs> and the money just kind of disappeared, disappeared afterward. Yeah. We don't know what happened. Uh, bad accounting, right? You know, so many of those guys did get screwed over earlier in their careers because they just didn't know yeah. any better. You know, they didn't really know how complicated this stuff could be or there were lots of weird loopholes that got exploited by people operating in bad faith. But ultimately, like, Night of the Living Dead's legacy is secure. It's been on every fucking greatest movies list, yeah. both horror and otherwise. It's part of the National Film Registry. It was entered in 1999. So, I mean, it's, you know, entire place in film history is definitely secure. What's interesting is, you know, if we're talking about themes, and we've kind of dug into some of this stuff already, but we can kind of get into a little bit more of it now. The most obvious readings of the film are like criticisms of American capitalism and the culture wars of the 60s. So just marginalized groups, women, people of color, the queer community, anti-war activists, etc. Just being slowly killed, consumed, assimilated into kind of the dead-brained consumerist American monoculture. Like, you know, that is kind of the overall we could slap that on the zombie genre as a whole, yeah. right? You know, we mentioned Vietnam. That's another easy thing to see in the film. The kind of grainy news style footage and dread that millions of people were seeing on their TVs every single night, except this was in your town, you know, or the next town over. This wasn't the other side of the globe where like, I'm never going to be in Vietnam. I don't know shit about Vietnam. I don't care about Vietnam. What happens over there? Whatever. This is like, oh shit, this could be 
like the next town over. That entire idea definitely was in the back of people's minds. You know, we've talked about Ben as well, too. You know, he's, again, the only one in the movie who is level-headed and rational and practical. And yet the rest of the cast treats him with condescension and arrogance and distrust and fear. All of which is probably exactly how they felt about black people before this whole crisis yeah. didn't always necessarily express it outwardly but it's clear that Dwayne Jones is channeling so much of his real life into this role and the fact that he's kind of used to being treated this way already so guess what now that we're in the middle of an actual fucking zombie apocalypse being othered like doesn't fucking bother me you know? <laughs> like, he, he can kind of keep going yeah. and just ignore that aspect of bullshit because there's way more important shit happening like immediately right now that we have to deal with yeah one thing i wanted to ask because it sounds like we're getting close to wrapping up kelly specifically because we brought it up a couple times and you had mentioned it specifically and this feels very in line with the rest of the movie gorilla style like when it comes to the way it's shot what do you mean by that specifically gorilla style more it's not specifically like a type of shot or anything like that it's just the means of getting it done yeah i'll tell y'all a quick story i think i've told y'all this story before make it super fast though so basically we we were like yo let's let's just do something super short we saw some kung fu movie and we wanted to do something kung fu-ish and in baton rouge they have what's called well they had what was called the jimmy swagger building you know he went bankrupt yeah now it's it's actually this big renaissance hotel but for years that building just sat there and it was locked up so you couldn't get in at all you know kids would go there and get in and whatever you know but anyway we were like yo let's go shoot in the swagger building and we got all the way to the i think it was like doors were locked on the first floor but you could climb up from the the first floor to the second and then the actual stairwells were open from the second floor up so you're good to go so we climbed all the way to the top because i really had this really cool shot that i wanted just kind of like on the rooftop of that swagger building the sheriff's department got called i just remember hearing you up there we know you're up there come down now and i was like oh fuck so literally we climbed down and as soon as we climbed down as soon as we turned the corner the sheriff's department they've got guns out and there i was like oh shit so we had camera bags and equipment and shit and good thing for me at that point i had a whole bunch of friends in the sheriff's department from my my days at the uh, the ray motion picture that will work details so most of the ebr sheriff's department that works anyone they were working details because they make so much good money they knew me yeah and they're like kelly what the fuck you doing up on the top of the swagger building and they're like man you was film a rush hour three <laughs> this was this was before rush hour three was coming out because it was me my korean friend jacob and then my homie uh, rico and we were trying to film something just you know asian kind of kung fu-ish so that was funny as fuck but racist as well but anyway <laughs> uh, <laughs> but guerrilla filmmaking is just i had you brought up a permit earlier in a cemetery of course, I had no permit to shoot in that swagger building. So it's like using your whatever resources are around you. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. On a low budget kind of. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah. You know, we're not doing anything that's, I guess, 
climbing up a wall and going up to the rooftop would be seen as dangerous because we're not accredited production, etc. I always laugh because we were caught by mall security. Mall <laughs> security caught us. I'm talking the Swagger Building couldn't be further from the fucking mall, Louisiana, and they caught us. And I was like, these motherfuckers ain't got nothing better to do with their lives than the yeah. you know catch some kids. <laughs> but uh, that's guerrilla filmmaking. It's like, yo, you know, we have no budget, little to no budget, and we're gonna do what we need to to get you know the vision, get the story. Yeah, it, yeah. it's not cutting corners because you have no corners to cut to yeah. begin with. Yeah. You're just using like whatever's around you. Definitely. Yeah, but a lot of it is very like we said, run and gun. Not a lot of setups. Not a lot of planning. It's just yeah. you know, let's get in, let's get out as quick as we can. Let's shoot where we're not supposed to be shooting. Let's do really kind of sketch filming just to kind of get the bits that we need a lot of time that's a lot of what guerrilla filming boils down to that's what makes night of the living dead feel so raw and genuine though like oh yeah because there's no way in hell you could have gotten this movie if they had a big budget like no way in hell it would have came out this way so another good example you you watched maniac recently that movie has a lot of guerrilla filmmaking in it. That movie had a lot of, oh, we were shooting without permits. We were shooting like on like yeah. raw New York streets. Original or remake? The, the original. original. Okay. Yeah. I recommended it on our last episode okay. because I just decided to watch it randomly. And like, yeah, there's straight up people looking directly at the camera. Yeah, yeah. pretty much all the extras are actual people that were just walking down the street at that moment. Yeah. So the story I'll throw in as well, since it involves somebody who's been on the show before and uh, similar to Kelly's, during college shooting one of our projects i was filming some kind of cormac mccarthy introspective voiceover narration man wandering through the post-apocalypse kind of bullshit jesus christ you (laughs) fucking nerd (laughs) and filmmaker zach lamplew who's been on our show was my actor for this we were shooting downtown in hattiesburg near the train tracks kind of in these houses that were all abandoned they had all been abandoned since katrina they had tree damage the people that owned them had just bailed or ditched or whatever so these were just empty houses right and we were filming outside it's not like we broke into these houses we were filming in the backyards kind of around them but he definitely had on like a big backpack and a big (laughs) coat and had a gas mask on and we have a bb gun rifle you know so we're shooting and we're filming on actual 16 millimeter god you two fucking nerds i would have (laughs) loved to been there we're shooting on actual 16 millimeter so it's not like i have a small video camera i have a giant fucking kind of film camera that's rolling we're back there shooting just not thinking and this was the most fucking rookie bullshit that i did the entire time i was in film school because we didn't tell anybody we were shooting there we didn't get any kind of permits we didn't call anybody we just went you know the houses were empty and we just figured fuck it nobody's gonna care i see where this is going maybe about 20 minutes after we were there same thing as kelly all of a sudden we see a helicopter fly over oh my god and we're like what the fuck and then all of a sudden we turn around and there's three police detectives that are all plain clothes or like button down shirt and tie guns drawn put the camera down put the gun down step away put your hands up full-blown everything handcuffed brought around front and had to like explain what we were doing and as soon as they saw like oh this is a bb gun this is like a video camera they were just like god damn it guys (laughs) you know just like next time fucking call us on the non-emergency line tell us that 
that you're going to be here. We'll send a car. We'll just put a car out front and that way nobody bugs y'all or whatever. And they were like, we don't care about permits. That's not a big deal. But these are fucking empty houses that have been empty forever. Yeah. Like there could be fucking meth heads in here yeah. that would have beat you senseless. What the fuck? So that was definitely a rookie mistake. And that was our lesson for the class when we went back the following week. Hey, if y'all are going to be filming out anywhere, always <laughs> let the police know and get permits or whatever. So yeah, guerrilla filmmaking. <laughs> but uh, the last kind of theme I want to briefly discuss, because I think this is something that's a newer idea that was not necessarily a situation at the time, but it's something that all three of us can relate to because we have all lived through this kind of bullshit being that we're all down here, right? So obviously this movie is from 1968. There have been plenty of new social flashpoints that have happened that have thematic connections to this movie, right? Where you can kind of construe some things here and there, right? So a more recent theme is the idea that there is inherent inequality and ineffectiveness of any type of civil defense, any type of FEMA rescue crew, public response to any kind of disaster. Katrina is a perfect example of how nobody was prepared enough. It was way bigger than everybody was expecting. Lots of stuff fucked up. Nobody could handle it. It was just too big for our government and our institutions and our security forces and just everything to handle, right? Wildfires, the Flint water crisis, all these mass shootings, uh, the fucking January 6th insurrection looks a lot like a fucking zombie attack, right? The fact that all of that society structure security blanket completely fucking disintegrates when anything real actually happens. And that's kind of terrifying, right? Because we're supposed to, like, trust that everything will be okay if there's an emergency. And we plan and we prepare for these kind of things. But it never holds up. It never holds up. When was the last time that everything really went off without a hitch? Right? It never does. So, like, that's something else with these movies. Definitely more so in the next few, but in this one especially. Like, you see how the military and the scientists and all the, like, local authorities are like, we have no idea what the fuck is going on. To the point, the local yokels just form a <laughs> posse. Exactly. Yeah. You right? could argue for a while it seems effective until the very end when they make a massive fucking mistake. Actually, now that you brought that up, Aaron, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the last 20 minutes of this film like the la the ending of this movie Kelly, you brought it up on our Get Out episode, the idea of the ending and like what happens to the main character and then the treatment of his body through the credits to the ultimate epilogue. I know I brought up like the zombies eating the organs and like the graveyard reveal is memorable to me, but the ending is really the most memorable, like gut punch. Can't believe they're doing this in a 1968 black and white movie. Yeah. What was it about it that led you to bring it up back on Get Out? Because I, I think I got it when I finally sat down and watched it for this movie. I mean, the ending is just as important as the slap for me when it comes to the specific themes that we talked about, like during Get Out or this, you know, that tie to just, you know, racial tension. And like, I don't remember what it is, but there are historians that have talked in depth about Night of the Living Dead, the original, 
and they always talk about the character of Ben. And it's crazy that you and Manny had, y'all had a little bit of back and forth earlier. And like, I was just kind of listening, reflecting. I, I don't remember exactly what was said, but it was something along the lines of, well, going into the basement or like, what was the right choice? What really fucking sucks about that, taking it to another level is like, or going a little deeper. Either way, that mob was coming. But no matter what decision Ben could have made or would have made, if these people did, were going to shoot him because he was black anyway, then it's almost like that's a choice that he couldn't have changed. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's all moot if the outcome was going to be the same regardless. Yeah. And and it sucks because that was the craziest thing in like George Romero fucking, he knew what would be visceral, visually like just visceral and have this kind of gut-wrenching feeling. He didn't show it in moving picture. He showed it in fucking steals. And it reminds you of yeah. shit that you've seen. Like You're right. We've yeah. all seen shit from that era of mobs of white men and women doing some kind of mutilation to a black body, yeah. you know? We've all seen pictures of lynchings. We've all exactly. seen pictures of shootings. All of those kinds of things resonate in our social consciousness. And it's all stuff that we've seen throughout history over and over and over. So, yeah. Yeah, the fact that we're getting that and just the visceral nature of meat hooking these fucking bodies. 100%. Yeah, yeah. the meat hooking was... There's yeah. nothing, right? These are not even people. It's just, it's fucking roadkill. It's just dead meat we gotta move. And then piling all these bodies up and just setting them on fire. Yeah. There's just something that's so unacceptable about it. Yeah, not taking the time to identify them so they can like, yeah. let loved ones know. Like, yeah. none of that. Just getting rid of them. And the thing thing too going with this ending like because after all this shit he's been through yeah. like as yeah. the protagonist he doesn't meet a glorious end it's not like him going guns blazing like taking yeah, out zombies he literally is like I guess I'm saved I'll, let me go look out the window and then they just shoot him unceremoniously it's almost random how it happens yeah. just suddenly and it's almost like both the most realistic part of this entire movie and the most horrifying in many regards Yeah, I think what sucks I don't mean to cut you off but you know it's so great that having open dialogue you start thinking about things and I think about, you know, because we just had that shooting in Buffalo. And it was racially motivated. Yeah. 100%, yeah. And it's just, it's crazy because now I'm getting to the point where I'm like, uh, amongst other things, I just added to the list of, you know, fears of being out. And But I say that to say... It's almost like the loss of how to articulate. It's just crazy because you think about everything Ben went through and you just said that. But it's almost like, man, he did all this good. You know, a lot of black people or people of color, I feel in this world, you know, at least in the, in this America, they feel like, man, if I check these boxes, man, let me check this box and I check that box, I'll be okay. But it fucking sucks that there have been so many instances in the history of this or country where it's like, it, it doesn't. Yeah. You check those fucking boxes and you'll still meet some end that shouldn't have been met. You know what I mean? So I think in a way, Ben is, he is a reflection of what it looks like to be black in America, you know? Yeah. yeah. We were talking about Master earlier. And it's the same exact thing yeah. you know, all these years later. It doesn't matter how well-spoken you happen to be. It doesn't matter how well you are dressed and present yourself. It yeah. doesn't matter how professional. And I'm doing like air quotes with all these things. Right? <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter how many, like you said, of those boxes that you check people are still going to bring their preconceived notions of who you could be and they're going to bring their biases to that and they're going to make assumptions and it's going to taint every decision that they make 
toward that person and how they treat that person and how they view that person and how they respect that person. You know, none of that has changed, unfortunately. You know, that's what's interesting about the ending of this movie is, again, they did not write this movie. They did not write this ending with a black lead in mind. You know, if Dwayne Jones had not been cast, this would have been a white character in the same ending. But the difference is, again, like just the casting in general, having a whole new set of connotations that comes along with it when it is a black actor in the lead having this ending in the wake of MLK's assassination in the wake of Malcolm X's assassination in the wake of all the bullshit that was going on in Vietnam and how many black people specifically were shoved into that fucking war against their will and were just sent overseas to fucking die all of that you know, the history of lynchings in America, the history of slavery, the fact that, oops, we have the same exact ending, but it happens to be with a black guy, completely fucking changes the entire tone of the ending. And it adds all those extra fucking layers because, like you said, it shows just how little black lives have been valued over the centuries. And alive, dead, doesn't matter, guess what, still black. All of that just added this extra layer of impact to the ending, you know? I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been very suburban, white, sheltered filmgoer in 1968. And not only like, I want to see this movie and just how extreme the movie is like overall, but then having that ending. And having to like yeah. actually sit and think about that afterward because you're watching over the entirety of the credits this montage of all this stuff happening, you know. So the movie doesn't even give you that moment of pause as the credits roll. It keeps going and it makes you fucking sit in it and deal with that yeah. as it's happening. And that's only ever like become more and more powerful as time has gone on because again, like we keep saying, none of this shit's really changed. Yeah, to kind of go back to like what you were saying with the breakdown of things are we live in a society, uh, the things that like are supposed to keep a society together. And then like when shit hits the fan, it crumbles. Also, a little bit of the danger is inside the house, too, because of everything that happens with the dad and even the little girl turning into the zombie like that leads to the chaos that causes pretty much everyone to die except for Ben, only for Ben to meet his fate later, as we've discussed. And they all kind of unceremoniously get killed off. Him or... No, yeah, it was him when he walked downstairs and the little girl zombie is eating the dad's arm. Like, fucking ridiculous. And then he has to execute all three of them because the mom and dad, of course, turn and come back. It's the trope of the monster is also humanity and it's also inside the house with you. And really what causes everything to kind of hit the fan is that breakdown of trust and, you know, the dad making the poor decision and everything. So any any final thoughts that we had about this? Again, I think less is more, uh, especially with like the zombie makeup. I think it makes the ghouls even more unnerving that there's only just little small defects that show them being not human. It's not like over the top walking dead rotting corpses, but I guess that's a happy accident that was effective for me but otherwise do y'all have any other final points this is like a conversation that we'll maybe have more in depth with some of the later movies but you know the makeup changes a lot as time goes on and the makeup has always been one of the focal points of these movies in general is okay cool what neat zombie shit are we gonna see and what crazy zombie kills are we gonna see in this movie right but I kind of agree with you, you know, for the most part that like less is more because one thing that always kind of blew my head open a little bit was 
reading World War Z, just the idea that zombies really wouldn't last that long. They would literally rot to a point where the bodies are not able to be mobile, and they would bloat with gas, and they would literally just rupture and explode and just be kind of writhing on the ground. The idea of zombies is not that practical. It would last for a little while, but then it would kind of go away. You know, that's why we've seen so many movies change the idea to, like, infected people (laughs) rather than, like, the undead entirely. Because a rotting corpse really would not last that long where it would still be able to, like, be mobile and attack you. But what about an undead ghoul? Yeah, but (laughs) but that's what I was about to say. I kind of like the idea that these are all very recent, fresh corpses. Like, these are all people that had been kind of turned within the last 24 hours, you know? Yeah, one of the newsreels makes a point to point that out. This is freshly dead people. It's not the dead and buried. These are not people climbing out of the ground actively from graves from decades prior, you know? These are not dusty, crusty, skeletal kind of zombies, you know? But obviously, that has changed over the years, and people have interpreted that differently, and there's a wide variety of, like, a little bit of... all takes of zombies that, you know, again, we'll see as we go through these movies over the next few months. I don't really think I have any last thoughts, per se, other than just, again, watch this fucking movie. Like, this is one of the most important movies ever made. It's the most readily available movie we've ever fucking discussed on this show. You have no excuse at this point. Hell, this is a fun one that any opportunity that you have during Halloween where somebody is projecting this on the side of a building or something, uh, go. It's fucking fun to see with a crowd, and it's fun to see, like, in that environment, and you legally can do that because guess what this movie's in the public fucking domain so if you want to just broadcast this on the side of a building you know have free tickets and everything you certainly could do that so yeah i would definitely just encourage people like watch this movie for sure kelly what final thoughts have you got that's it just definitely check it out and i think the greatest thing that i uh, i want to tell both of y'all i appreciate you know the work that y'all do i think this is a, a great platform to make people think more broadly and deeper about film nothing's ever as on the surface as we we like to think maybe sometimes i forget what um what filmmaker it was where he was like i make movies that i want to make and you know i'm not trying to be anything other than what you see on the screen and he's like fuck everything else i forget who that was but like you know most filmmakers they want you to think i think the great thing about films just like books and comics and other art mediums it just opens dialogue right there's no better feeling if i would leave a theater and i didn't want to talk to somebody about the film for the most part it probably just meant like i didn't like it you know what i mean like yeah if i left the theater and i wanted to talk you know most cases if i'm leaving the theater i'm talking because most movies i'm going to theater to see i really wanted to see and I'm at the point where I'm very seldomly like let down from the theatrical experience. It's because, you know, we went through two years of COVID, not being in movie theaters. Yeah. Now it's like, you know, we're, we're getting back in. And I guess that's it. That's all I really want to say is thank the both of y'all for this platform. And I think people need to, I guess, watch more movies always. It's always going to be on my list of things to spread, you know, and Absolutely. advocate. But uh, that's it. Hell yeah. Night Living Dead is 
a capital M masterpiece. Go watch it. Kelly, thank you for coming on for this. It's always a joy to have yeah, you on. Thank you so much. And Kelly will be back before this series is <laughs> over. Just <laughs> wink, wink. And that'll be an interesting conversation because uh, I have thoughts about that movie that might not be the same as you. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to see where that conversation goes. But yeah, he will definitely be back. Like we've mentioned earlier, the plan is to have a complimentary movie for our next episode episode to this one and then we will be discussing the original dawn of the dead for our first july episode so stick with us it's going to be fun this whole conversation is going to be interesting as time goes on because again these movies change and evolve over time so definitely excited to see where this goes with that we are watch if you dare a horror movie podcast Catch us on all the major podcatchers at this rate, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Stitcher, et cetera, et cetera. Please continue to follow us and rate review us, especially on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Those seem like two of the big ones. Oh, and Good Pods as well. We, we keep charting on, on those ones. So thank you so much for the support. Please continue to do that. Please recommend us to friends, family, et cetera. Yep. Spread the word on the podcast. You can find us on our socials at Watch If You Dare on Facebook and Twitter. Shout out to your little brother, Jesse Mansfield, aka Party Gator, aka Opossums, aka Big Clown, all the other shit that he does music wise. Uh, Thank you to him for all the bumps at the beginning and end of each episode. And speaking of music, check out our Spotify music playlist. It is at the top of our Twitter account and our Facebook page for some tunes that are inspired by horror and also tunes from horror movies. Please continue to like sub to that as well if you want some spooky tunes and once again kelly thank you so much thank you for coming on hell yeah thank you bro we will have you on again very soon uh any final thoughts aaron they're coming for you sally they're coming to get you they're coming to get you sally 